What's up my fellow poker enthusiasts, it's Renee aka The Wacko here and together with my co-host Adam Carmichael we present to you the Mechanics of Poker podcast. In this podcast we deconstruct high stakes poker players figuring out what it is about them, how they think, what they do that makes them so successful with an extra focus on the obstacles they faced and the skills they had to develop to surpass them. Over the years, me and Adam have gained a lot of experience in both reaching high-stakes poker ourselves and teaching other players to do the same. We have bundled all this knowledge together in our coaching program, The Mechanics of Poker, which is the most complete poker coaching product on the market. If you want to have a chance to work with me and Adam so you can get unstuck and make more progress in your poker career, go over to mechanicsofpoker.com to apply. But without further ado, let's learn from another high stakes player's journey in today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Mechanics of Poker podcast. Today we have a very lucky poker player. Come on. Name is Lucky Chewy. Now, if you're curious where this nickname comes from, it's not really a question that I usually ask, but we will ask that in today's uh, episode so if you're curious about that go check that out lucky chewy aka mr lichtenberger andrew lichtenberger his name he plays live mtts travels the high road scene he's been poker for a very long time and he has reinvented himself in within poker and um and outside of poker many times over a lot of wisdom in this guest which i'm very curious to explore adam what are you particularly curious about to discuss with andrew a few things. First of all, his kind of longevity in poker has been very impressive. I think I was following Lucky Chewy before I even played poker. I think he had some uh, kind of living high stakes, high stakes poker life with other players. I remember getting inspired by professional players living in Vegas and being yeah, making lots of money. And also, I want to really dig into his kind of background into spirituality. I know he went deep into kind of meditation and yoga and very practical uh, practices that people can use. And he's been able to apply those to the context to have more success in recent times. So really interested in touching on those topics and seeing where we can, what wisdom we can get for the audience. Yeah, you mentioned that longevity there. I think he also played many different formats, online, live, cash games, entities, heads up. Very curious how that has evolved his game as well. Before we start, I would like to give a big shout out to our sponsor, GTO Wizard, for sponsoring today's podcast. GTO Wizard has made studying poker accessible for everyone and in my opinion is one of the best places to go if you are serious about improving your poker game. Next to having access to all GTO solutions for every spot and having the ability to upload your hand and let Wizard find it for leaks, you get access to weekly coaching webinars in which various coaches, including myself, educate you on the most important spots to start crushing the game. So if you're interested in that, go over to gtowizard.com slash mechanics to get started and you'll get 10% off on your first month. That is gtowizard.com slash mechanics. At the end of this podcast, we will have a giveaway where you can win one free month membership for GTO Wizard. So make sure to stick around. But for now, without further ado, let's get into today's episode with Andrew. All right, Mr. Chewy, thank you uh, for coming on the pod. I've really looked forward to uh, to having this episode personally. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I don't actually really ask this question often, but this time I'm uh, very curious. 
and I have not been able to find it anywhere. Where did the nickname Lucky Chewy came from? So Chewy came from third grade. My mother would pack granola bars with my lunch and my classmates recognized this. Every day I'd be eating a granola bar and uh, one of my friends started calling me Chewy and that kind of just stuck with me throughout my youth. And then when I found online poker, I was already Chewy in my own mind and I figured, okay, playing good is important. Then being lucky is also important. And hence Lucky Chewy was born. Nice. Now th that is a good nickname. Like my, my personal nickname is the Wacko, and I just invented that because people said I was a bit crazy in the beginning. So you know, <laughs> Wacko that kind of rolled rolled my mind. What was your what was your nickname, Adam? And did it have any? Do you have any backstory there? Mine was super original. Mine was my name, Adam C. Or Adam Carmichael, and then the year, my date of birth. So <laughs> not very original. <laughs> to be fair, usually when I see something like that, I kind of have like a, a fish suspicion. So from that point of view, I made you. I, th I think you made a good level. But I think it's a really, a really, I really like the story behind your nickname, uh, Mr. Chewy. Uh, I, I know you are big on spirituality, and we will go deeper in that later in the pot. But just to start it off, as calling yourself lucky. And believing you are lucky contributed to more luck? And if so, how, in your opinion, would that work? Well, that is a great question. And it's, it's in some ways, the question is like, how deep does the rabbit hole go? I mean, I think generally positive thinking is a good thing. Kind of just a free roll, right? Being optimistic, um, believing just fundamentally good things will happen to you. Um, I've just sort of always been this way. I think it's largely the influence of my parents, but... Uh, you know, testing out different methodologies that um, you know you can apply to your life. I've, I've found this to be preferable. Um, as far as like, you know, when you start to get into more metaphysical or quantum type things, how much does this actually change physical reality? I don't know. Um, I would like to think that it does. I've had certain experiences where it makes you question things and you feel like maybe you have more autonomy over this realm, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I would like to think that it does. Yeah, for, for, for maybe for the listeners, when you say like quantum physics or the, the, the way I kind of understand it uh, and my, my education purely comes from Mr. Joe Dispenza is like there's a sort of energy around us. And if we align with that energy, we attract a certain reality towards us. So like a, a reality in which you're always lucky, for example, lucky Chewy. That's a reality you align with by, uh, I guess, altering your state to a higher level, higher waves, higher energy. And then that luckier version will actually happen to you now. Do I, do I say this about right? This is kind yeah, of what we're I talking about. Completely agree with that. The, the way I would maybe shorten it is, you know, if we exist in a multiverse, then any sort of, you know, freeze frame of that multiverse can be accessed by tuning yourself to sort of the right frequency within it. Um, I'm also a fan of Dr. Joe Dispenza, so that resonates with me as well. Yeah, for for, for the listeners who are uh, after this podcast a bit curious, I would definitely advise his knowledge as I think he is a good bridge between logic and spirituality. Like mm -hmm. he explains things in a way that's very understandable for a lot of logic logical thinking people. They're like, oh, this actually makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, I, th I think he gives the gives the example. I think it was in one of his books where he talks about, you know, signals that you send from the brain to your body will have a physiological effect. And at some point he says, well, you know, 
our, our audience is 99% male. Uh, if you think about a hot woman, naked or something, it sends signals, in this case, to your genitals, and you will get a physical reaction, right? It was like, ah, that makes a lot of sense. And then you think he, he, I think, I think he says about like five other points in your body or like stress, you know, all this kind of stuff. So if you, you're constantly thinking like negative thoughts, uh, thinking that you're unlucky, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm on your side here. I definitely believe this has a negative impact, right? You also get like a negative bias or you put sort of negative glasses on through which you see the world and you're kind of highlighting the negative all the time, which as you said, if true or false, we don't know, but at least it's a positive free roll, right? To to have a positive and lucky attitude towards life. Yeah, definitely. And I, I really believe that the ripple effect is quite profound. So, you know, the beliefs you have, the way that they uh, affect, you know, not just now, but your future experiences, um, I've found that to be you know, quite relevant. And and to your point about, you know, your mind affecting your physiology, I use that when I play as well in a more practical sense. Like if I feel too, because I can get quite excitable. I think that's why I took well to, you know, whether it's yoga or meditation or what have you, because they calm you down. I'll often, you know, visualize my heart or, um, you know, my breath and my heart and just try to like relax at the table um, because, yeah, just, you know, staying calm and focused is paramount. And I really enjoy poker. So I get very excited when I play. <laughs> this is, so how would people people go through it? Let's say, for example, I go play live, which I don't often do. I can find that quite exciting. Let's say you make a big bluff for quote, quote, real money. You know, your heart starts pounding. What are like some practical tips? Like what, what I usually try to do, I try to focus on breathing, like slowing down my breath doing like some sort of box breathing for me really calms mm -hmm. me down at the table and makes me think clearly. Uh, I also, in my mind, usually go over why I think this is such a great bluff. Doesn't work if in hindsight, I think it's not a great bluff that I might get a little bit nervous. Uh, but, but what are like some practical tips for, for the listeners here? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think when I really believe and have confidence in the play, um, it quells any sort of anxiety that might accompany it. Um, as far as like your heart beating quickly during a bluff, I tend to feel like when that happens to me, it's either some combination of I haven't really calmed myself down going into it. And it's like that ship has sailed. You just got to live with it at that point. Um, or it's, you know, as mentioned, like it, it's just not a great play. I'm forcing it. Um, but, it, you know, sometimes my heart rate will accelerate when I have good hands and, and bet large amounts as well. So, yeah, I just ideally want to be in like a calm, relaxed state. And I do think that's kind of an ever-present uh, challenge, um, you know, when playing poker. Yeah, you talked about like sort of pre-session preparation. So I, the way I see it, you can work on it like from a long term and we will get deeper into like meditation and stuff like that. And also like short term, that's a bit more, I guess, sort of priming or getting yourself in the right state before you're playing. Uh, I think you practice both, if I'm correct, right? Yeah, I've toyed around with different techniques. Um, meditation is still very much a part of my life. Um, Pre-session sort of techniques, I, I don't really have too much rigidity there. I found that trying to you know execute or implement the same kind of routine um, just felt a bit limiting, and I, I felt like it was actually counterproductive. So you know, in the mornings, I just try to do whatever it is that feels right on any given day and then just, you know, be comfortable when I head into the casino to play. 
That's actually a good point. I've talked to some other people as well. I'm personally quite rigid in terms of like my schedule around like playing days. But then I hear other people say that that actually only sort of increases stress. So they, they, I guess, feel too much pressure when they do that. And it's what you pointed out. Maybe some days your your needs are different than other days. I can, I can totally see that. So you you have to be a little bit flexible in that. Or at least people who experience that. I personally don't really experience that. There's like a set a set routine that I go through and I don't experience uh, any any negativity around that. You you already mentioned your your family in there and in terms of your beliefs. Why do you think, and I've, I've heard you talk about beliefs before. Why do you think beliefs are so important uh, whether it is actually in poker or or in life, why are there like I think you you mentioned it's like the sort of the foundation from which the where the rest sort of flourishes. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I guess the way that uh, I sort of have structured my belief system is that uh, <laughs> I suppose you know this idea underlies beliefs generally. Um, but I feel like they are kind of the foundation by which you live your life. That which you believe to be true are things that you just do. Um, so, yeah, you, uh, you know, it's, it's important, I guess, to check in with yourself and make sure that your beliefs do actually align with who you are and that you don't have, um, you know, sort of autopilot type, um, I guess, mechanisms or programs at play which have just sort of existed in your subconscious and are affecting you when that's not actually the way you prefer to live Mm -hmm. that actually that actually makes a lot of that actually makes a lot of sense what are what are like some signs that your beliefs might not be aligned with what you're doing maybe in your experience or things that you've observed in other people um, I guess I would say any sort of like um, negative emotion or experience outside the norm where you feel like something was brought on by like it almost it's like, oh, this just happened. I don't really know why this happened or now I'm upset. I, I tend to think those are instances where you can usually gain some insight into, you know, who you really are and how you've been operating, perhaps out of alignment with who you truly are. Yeah, I usually reflect. And if I experience emotions, which I think I quote, quote, should not be experiencing at that moment or like, wait, why is this emotion present in this moment? This makes no sense. Or I overreact to a certain situation. That's usually a good time to, in the moment, it's quite hard, of course, to step back a little bit. But after after the moment, you can reflect on it. Like, hey, why, why did I react so out of proportion to this single event or why did I feel this way in like, why, why did I feel a lot of uh, fear or that I wanted to go away from a situation in a spot where I was put in a great opportunity, for example, that's mm-hmm. something that I've uh, personally experienced. Whereas yeah. like a, a certain fear of failure, like, Oh, the opportunity now arises. So I should be very happy, right. And excited. But instead I might feel anxiety or I might feel that I want to get away from the situation. Whereas like, yeah. Oh, apparently I have a certain belief that when the opportunity arises, I might not be up for the job. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. And uh, I would say that initially when those things happen, you know, kind of makes you want to run away from those emotions. But over time, I've sort of felt like, oh, these are actually just the keys to kind of unlock 
you know, whatever's going on that is preventing you from feeling the way that you, uh, you know, as you put it, quote unquote, should feel, or ideally wants to feel or, or feel more natural, I suppose. Yeah, I think the natural tendency, especially in the beginning, is to es try to escape, right? We try to look for distractions so we don't feel that certain way anymore. Uh, but yeah, it will it will keep on coming back if you put yourself in similar situations. So I think the long or the, the sustainable way forward is indeed to use them as sort of a compass, right? Like, oh, apparently there's something there. Let me let, let me check out what's underneath. Unpleasant in the moment, unpleasant in the beginning, but definitely worth it, I would say, in the long term. Uh, you already mentioned like certain beliefs obviously were already created by how you were raised by your family. Um, I think a belief uh, that you are, for example, lucky, chewy, you're very optimistic, right? You already mentioned, do you see this kind of as a free roll? Is this something that you were kind of uh, spoot fed uh, from your upbringing by your, by your family? Like, Hey, Mr. Chewy, you can do whatever you want. Be optimistic. Is it kind of the same philosophy they have towards life that they gave to you? Um, yeah, I would say so. Um, my, my father is very happy, kind of go lucky guy and, uh, very goofy. Uh, I think I get a lot of my sort of goofy nature from him. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely, you know, have a debt of gratitude for the way that he has chosen to exist in the world and the way that that's impacted my personality as well. Would you say that this has helped you also to choose a career path that's maybe not as obvious as, you know, other career paths that were available to you, in this case, poker. You need a certain optimism, right? If, if you're going to go gambling for a living. Um, so he definitely helped me in other ways, just generally being supportive about taking, uh, you know, a less beaten path, so to speak. Um, this specifically, I don't know. Um, again, I imagine it probably doesn't hurt. But I was just very into games. And, you know, once I found poker, which of course is a game that you can do quite well at if you really apply yourself, I think that was kind of the, you know, the most helpful aspect, which was I was already into strategic um, endeavors. And yeah, just fit nicely. Yeah, we hear this quite often with the players coming on the pod that they had a history in gaming. I heard you play chess. Was that back then already? Or were we, were we talking more like video games, board games? I did play some chess, not really too much. I was much more into Blizzard games. So Warcraft, Starcraft, Diablo. Warcraft 3 was a game I put a lot of time into. Um, yeah, I played those games for maybe three or four years before I found poker. And... I would even kind of multitask in the early goings and like, oh, well, I can play both at the same time. And then I quickly realized like, well, I can just play more tables. That's probably a better idea and really focus on what I'm doing. Uh, so eventually I had to put the Blizzard games down to rest. How have you found, so for example, I used to like a lot of video games as well, but then I spent more time on online poker. And then I kind of figured that if I wasn't playing online poker to then spend time playing video games as well was a bit, yeah, a bit too much time behind the computer for me did you maybe at some point struggle with okay i have to give up maybe like a certain passion for video games because i'm already spending so much time in online poker or for you there was no problem like oh i i continued playing my online poker session now let's let's get into some warcraft yeah i mean once i found poker and kind of really got into it honestly i just dropped all the games i think it was largely a byproduct of sort of recognizing where i was in my life 
I found poker end of high school. Um, at the time that I was, you know, going to college, I attended a school nearby where I was living. Didn't really have much ambition to, you know, pursue a major or, yeah, I mean, just nothing was really as interesting as poker. So I recognized that if I really do, you know, give this a solid shot for the next year or two and I'm able to make something of it, uh, you know, this is a great opportunity. And I was able to identify at that point that people were making a living doing this. Um, and of course, you know, that is what ended up happening. Uh, but yeah, the games would have just detracted from that. I was very much all in poker and even maybe to an unhealthy degree. I mean, I was playing a lot and, you know, studying as much as I could at that time, which was mostly just reading, uh, you know, old forum posts on two plus two, reading articles. Um, yeah, just trying to get my hands on as much material as I could, which would have been, you know, any kind of help for someone who was starting from scratch. I think uh, this is a, uh... Quite a common theme as well, right? Players go through a time, you label it as maybe I spent an unhealthy amount of time in poker. You were obsessed with the game. I think all players that we've had on probably went through a certain phase like that. And I would almost say it's almost necessary in a certain way. Uh, obviously, now you probably are more about, like, hey, we, have to, we have to think about work-life balance. Obsession is maybe, maybe you know, not ideal, but I do think it helps in a certain way uh, this could also be survivor bias, by the way. Um, in terms of like comparing poker to the games you were playing, you already mentioned you saw more of a actual career path in poker, right? You saw the earning potential. Was there also like something about poker that made you like to play it more than, for example, Warcraft? Were there like certain components to poker that Warcraft didn't have that attracted you towards the game a bit more? Yeah, I mean, if I'm being honest, like poker is just the best game I've ever found. Uh, I don't know. What makes it that? I'm curious. Great. Unlimited betting. Uh, I mean, I think. So, no, 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 no pot limit, limit stuff for you. It has to be no limit. Yeah, I mean, I've dabbled in in various formats, but uh, I always find myself coming back to to hold them. I play mostly tournaments nowadays, although I did start and play cash games for quite a few years into my career. Um, I don't know that I can really pinpoint what it was about poker that I found so much more intriguing than Warcraft because when I was playing that, I felt like, you know, this is the best game I've ever found. So yeah, I don't know. It's just, I guess, uh, you know, here's one thing. There's obviously a, a great deal of complexity to the game, but you can, you know, simplify certain aspects of it and even still, every time I play, I always learn something new. I just find that pretty astounding. That like, no matter how much you play, always something new uh, is presented to you. Some kind of new decision point, different range composition, different strategies, sizing, so on and so forth. Um, so I just love that. It kind of is you know, very intellectually stimulating. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. I've been, I've been playing poker for, I think, 12 years and every year when you look back it's like no 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 last year you did not understand the game this year you understand the game and then <laughs> you know it's, it's every, every year it's kind of a, a repetition of of the same but it's interesting it's just like life in a certain way right you see it's this, you you get dealt the same hands you see the same flop but you see something different in the flop every time right 
with when when your knowledge increases. So I guess it's a bit like life as well. You know, you put different glasses on and you see the same situation, but maybe because of your certain beliefs or because in this case you gained a certain knowledge, you now know certain concepts that you didn't know before, you suddenly see different possibilities or different threats that you didn't see before, right? That lets you to make certain mistakes or filter to make better plays in the past. So once your knowledge increases, the same game, but like you said, obviously certain situations, small new ones has changed, but also it can be exactly the same situation, but due to gain knowledge, you just see something different in the exact same flop that you didn't see before. It was there, but you didn't see it. Yeah, and sometimes that's just the foresight about various turns of rivers, which is impacting your current decision. Uh, but yeah, no, having your knowledge base grow and just an overall understanding grow, I, I really enjoy that, especially when different ideas coalesce and you have more cohesive thoughts about things and you see how different parts of the game tree connect. Yeah, just a never-ending process of, in some ways, self-discovery, but certainly discovery of the game. Yeah, I remember some of those moments that you mentioned where you actually came to the conclusion. When you come to the conclusion why you always get into shitty spots, it's like, oh. It's like you said, oh, I used to get this river scenario. Oh, wait, I should have just done something different at an earlier street so I don't get in that situation anymore. It's like, oh, wow. So that's yeah. so that's so that's why I keep screwing myself. Yeah, exactly. It's like, boom. <laughs> yeah, yeah there's that, that's certain concepts in poker that once you learn it, it's like, wow. Oh, wow. So this is how it works, uh, which, is, which is really fascinating. And I hope to still have many more of those experiences to come in the future. Uh, yeah. After you got introduced to poker, uh, I think you mentioned, you know, you played video games. And then after high school, you transitioned into poker. I read somewhere that I think you were losing online for the first 18 months. What made you continue to play the game despite not being able to win? Well, I guess in some ways, my previous experience with computer games helped there because I was not particularly great at those when I started either. And then, you know, just sticking with it and kind of in it, eventually getting the hang of it, understanding sort of you know, similar things that happen in poker, various patterns that emerge. Uh, eventually, I was able to reach you know reasonably high level of um, competition. So in some ways, I felt like, okay, this is just a repetition of that. Obviously, it's you know now costing you money, and it is a different game. Uh, so it was quite a testing time, and that was where I would say, you know, my father's kind of support, not feeling any sort of pressure from him, as if you know I imagine for many people, uh, their parents aren't particularly supportive and feel like they're throwing their lives away. Um, but yeah, no, he's just like, hey, it makes you happy, and I believe in you, and yeah, that was great. So yeah, stuck with it and. Obviously, it worked out. I guess it's also, again, a certain belief, right? That other people, maybe when they start to play poker and they lose for one month straight, they're like, well, apparently this is not for me, right? A very sort of fixed mindset type of thinking, whereas you kind of felt like, oh, well, I'm usually shit at things when I start. Uh, <laughs> and when I put in the work, I get better. So you don't see losing as sort of attack on your personality, like, oh, wait. And I think I think this is quite common with kids who are labeled like very smart in the beginning, right? That they're like, oh, well, apparently I'm smart. I'm good at stuff. And then when they face something that they're not good at, they immediately kind of retreat. Well, apparently, you know, I'm a smart kid, but apparently this is not for me. Whereas if you kind of learn that in the beginning, you know, you have a certain natural learning curve, you don't stray away from 
yeah, adversity in the beginning. And I think that's kind of a belief that that plays a role here. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I guess I'll mention that, um, you know, fortunately it wasn't a straight down experience. I have, you know, moments of, of success. You, 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 you could taste it a little bit like, Oh, so this is what it tastes like. Yeah. And, and I did even from the get go, um, you know, I was able to identify certain things that I was improving at. I'll never forget. There was one day where I was, um, it had like snowed a lot in the town I grew up in and school got canceled. Uh, this was, you know, end of high school and I was playing like all night on party and they had just opened like, uh, two, four, three, six, no limit tables for the longest time. They only had two, one, two full ring tables. They used to get like massive wait lists. Then they opened six max tables. And I was of course, you know, buying in like all the money I had on the site and, uh, I remember kind of reviewing some of the hands I played later that day. And I was like, huh, I haven't really thought about how much is in the pot. That is so important. <laughs> and then from that moment forward, you know, everything, yeah, exactly. Everything changes. Um, but yeah, you know, those aha moments still happen, obviously to lesser degrees. Um, but you know, even when you gain a fairly deep understanding, having a, you know, a slight tweak is, is fairly meaningful. Uh, but yeah, good times back then. So eventually you did start winning. I assume before you turn pro, it's not like, oh, I'm a losing player. Let's turn pro. That's usually not really the way it works, but at some point you did uh, accumulate certain knowledge. Uh, I believe you played online cash, right? You're referring to six max tables. You jumped in with all the role that you had on your site. Um, how did you go about improving your game to the point you would win enough to to be become a pro? Like, how did that learning process worked for you? Like, you learned that there was money in the pot, and that's pretty relevant. What was like the the kind of the next journey uh, towards becoming like a winning player in the games and turning yeah, pro? Yeah, so um, I was learning a lot from two plus two. It was just a wealth of knowledge to be able to access old posts from guys who were winning at the highest stakes during that time frame, um, It was a much smaller community back then. This was 2006, I guess, um, 2006, 2007. So around that time, uh, I started posting a lot myself when I was playing and there was probably a dozen or two dozen guys who were doing the same thing and we would you know, compete against each other. And it was uh, you know, just a very tightly knit community, although it was a public forum. Um, and then I made certain friends uh, we communicated outside of the forums and uh, a couple of guys were nice enough to sweat me on Skype and give me some advice. And uh, yeah, that just kind of led to an early ascent and and feeling like I really had a, a good idea of what was going on. I had a, a big challenge moving up from one, two to two, four. Like I was, I was shot taking a bit and uh, I couldn't really ever break through. And then one of my friends was just like, you just have to three bet more. And I was like, okay, fuck it, like, I'm just going to free bet, insane. And then I won, like, 100 buy-ins that month, but I was going way too hard. And probably it worked well because I had the image of, you know, not free betting enough. I think I just leaned too passive in those days. Um, yeah, that really helped. That was a big breakthrough for me. I love online poker in the past. Such easy, 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 easy fixes to people's game. Yeah, just free bet and bam, 
here we go. <laughs> Nowadays, it's, it's it's a little bit more complicated usually. But uh, uh, yeah. any any anyone in particular that stands out like that you met through the forums that really had a big impact on your career? Yeah. So the guy who who mentioned this to me was Ben Strade. Um, I don't know what he's up to. He did uh, stick around for quite a while and, and played and succeeded. I think at fairly high stakes on full tilt. I think he was Swedish. I'm not totally sure. Um, and then I met A.E. Jones or Aaron Jones um, on the forums and eventually at one point went out to Indiana to visit him and a number of his friends. Uh, he was very much a mentor to me at that time. He was winning at much higher stakes and uh, was able to give me a lot of just sort of practical advice that I think I was not understanding particularly well. Do you remember a specific specific thing that Aaron mentioned to you? Like I said, you lacked certain basic understandings that hurt your game. Do you remember a moment where Aaron said something to you, or like, oh, you know, like a post, a post, how much money is in the pot? Now, now, AA Jones told told you this is actually how it works. You were already three betting more, so your game started to develop in a positive way. Yeah, I think um, what he did was sort of just help me refine certain things. Um, understand a little bit more deeply conceptual ideas, you know, how to size on certain rivers, you know, even going back to pre-flop, how to construct the free betting range. A lot of these ideas didn't really carry over into the modern era of poker, but they worked very well back then. Um, and I think largely that was because people didn't free bet enough. Um, so free betting worse hands and calling better ones uh, just sort of, you know, worked out. Um, yeah, it was... A lot of things <laughs> so many leaks to plug uh, i started playing a lot of heads up around that time and then eventually transitioned a bit into tournaments and uh that was a rocky road but you know eventually it worked out i, I don't think i was really prepared for the kind of variance that tournaments entail in my <laughs> my early goings yeah, for a little bit of the newer school players, you know, when they now get into poker, they're introduced to solvers straight away. What were kind of the learning resources available? Two plus two, I remember, as you mentioned, was very big back then. And a lot of the older school players, they contribute a lot of their success to that. They were like, yeah, like you said, great minds. They were just posting in public forums, free information everywhere. You know, it's very much different these days. People are way more reserved in terms of sharing information. What were like some other sources or were like stuff like, Card Runners, was that already out back then? So Card Runners came out at the time that I was already playing and succeeding. I don't remember mm, exactly okay. what year it was. I want to say 07, 08, maybe? Maybe 2008? That sounds about right. Um, yeah, there were. that was you know the first uh, training site that existed. Beyond that, it was really just discussions with friends. You know, there were very sort of limited tools to be able to quantify different aspects of poker. Um, so it was, you know, just you put your minds together and discuss things and see like, hey, I think this, my intuition says this, and debate different points. And in some way, it was kind of the romantic era of poker, like you could compare it to the romantic era of chess. There was, you know, a, a bit more purity to everything. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I love how the industry has evolved. Um, but I also do have kind of a reverence for, uh, you know, the, the times back then, the good old days, if you will. Yeah, sometimes if I talk to like newer school players, you know, that have only been playing for like three years. Uh, and then they say, well, well how, how did you used to do it? Said, well, we don't have a solver. So, yeah, you, you start, you start like now we think like, okay, it's like a reverse engineering 
path that we are on now, right? We have the solution, then we have to figure out why the solution is correct. Whereas in the past was you have no solution, so you start from scratch. You're like, okay, let's try to figure out, yeah, what kind of strategy we can build around here that, uh, yeah, that that would actually make sense. Uh, and actually, surprisingly, a lot of the things, I'm sure you had that as well when you start to work with solvers, a lot of the concepts that you were applying were actually solver approved, right? Maybe after a little bit of node locking here and there, uh, that's usually kind of where your intuition says, hmm, solver, I'm not really sure. And then you, then you put in some node locks and you're like, yeah, this this is what I'm talking about. Um, I, I kind of lost my point here, but hey. No, that, that does it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, definitely, I definitely agree. And it was extremely gratifying to have those moments of, you know, ideas that you felt were very essential to poker to be somewhat confirmed. Um, and then it was also, you know, just as, interesting and exciting to see where you completely miss the mark and then just you know be able to replace uh worse ideas with better ones yeah exactly i mean yeah it, it, i the way i usually see it it had is uh yeah it has its benefits and its downsides i think i heard you mention this before that you know uh, play players like you or players like me when we were already succeeding in the past before solvers we had a certain natural ability to figure out the game that skill has kind of, I don't want to say completely vanished. Obviously, we're still, I think, better than like new school players in terms of like sort of node locking in our hat and estimating the situation and finding the right adjustments. Um, but yeah, we since we have succeeded pre-solver, the solver did kind of screw REV a little bit more than other people, I guess. Yeah, in, in a sense, it did. But um, I just think sort of the advance of technology is inevitable. And it also does move the industry forward. I'm a big believer in that. Like I want to see poker continue to grow. I want to see it evolve. And I think it would be a bit short-sighted of me to feel in any way wronged by that. Now, I definitely have had those thoughts in the past, but I think they were kind of just short-sighted. Yeah, I my, my personal stance on like technology and for example, software, in online poker, I remember there's a big debate around the seeding scripts when they were still allowed. And yeah, everyone was using them, including myself. And people were having a discussion, like, yeah, should this be there? Should this not be there? Or people were discussing this about HUDs and later about solvers. But I'm always, I was always been in the game, yeah, what, what I think about it personally doesn't actually really matter. It's like people are using it, getting an edge. I'm in the same games. I have to get the every edge that I can as well. So I'm going to use anything that's available to me and yeah what i actually think about that yeah okay we can we can maybe think about this when the time is over but right now you know like why would i go to quote quote war with someone at the table who uses a hut and i and i'm gonna say no I, I'm, I'm not into huts why, why why would i give that free edge right well i mean i guess the counterpoint to that i still do play online some one of the <laughs> sites i play on which is wsop.com doesn't allow huts the other site I've put some volume in on his ACR, which does. I don't use a HUD. Mm -hmm. um, I I don't know. I, I've gone back and forth. I obviously have used one in the past. Um, I see where it's useful. I find that you need fairly big sample sizes. And I think it's also unique to me that I have kind of very um, sharp recall of hands. So if I play a hand against someone... You know, I'll likely remember it in multiple months or years if it's significant. Um, so I guess that's maybe uh, makes the discussion somewhat moot. But um, 
yeah, I, I do. I do believe that like it's it's an advantage if you use it well. I found that in the past, I was not able to perform my best at the tables whilst also taking the best out of the the information given by the HUD or the data given by the HUD. Yeah, obviously, because it's suddenly a decision point that interferes with your normal train of thought, right? It's like, oh, you, you just go in your normal thought process, but now suddenly you have a certain hot sets that maybe tells you something. Then the next thing is like, okay, how relevant is actually the sample? And then yeah. often, more often than not, that's probably what you experience when going back and forth. Often, more often than not, yeah, it's just noise that kind of screws up your natural thought process and kind of prevents you from getting in flow, which in the end, if you get in flow, that you will make better decisions, you know, based on your intuition and you can basically just throw a hut out of the window. I would say the majority of people use a hut wrong. Uh, so yeah, then, 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 then I agree with you there, but for example, don't you use a hut for ethical purposes or just because it's, uh, yeah, it doesn't, it, it doesn't fit within your, your thought process. Yeah. It's more of a ladder. I, I mean, yeah. at this point I can see the argument for why certain HUDs with very advanced features, one could argue they're unethical, but again, it's an equal playing field as long as the sites allow them and everybody has access to it. I don't know. I mean, what is one to do? It's like you said, if, if your opponents are using it and you feel like it's going to give you an advantage, I mean, if you kind of take an ethical stance and decide not to use it, you are just costing yourself. Which, you know, if, if you do that, that's fine, but then don't take the ethical stance and then continue to frustrate yourself that online poker has huts now, right? That's kind of the the worst option, I would say. And I, I, did, I have seen this quite a lot. It was especially true with seeding scripts. Like, oh, I'm against seeding scripts. Go play online poker and never get a game. Yeah, okay, maybe, you know, may, maybe, maybe I have to adjust here a little bit, right? Because then you live in just a world of frustration, whereas you're like, listen, I'm not going to use it. I accept that I will miss certain games and that's fine. Then at least you know you don't live in a constant, uh, yeah, constant vibe of frustration. That seems like the the worst idea, in my opinion. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, you, you at a certain point we have to come to terms with what is actually happening in reality. And again, we could sort of debate whether HUD should exist in the first place, but that ship has very much sailed. And yeah, we're not in Kansas anymore, so you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, you so you turn pro. I'm I'm curious. Usually, I ask this question: like, what were kind of your expectations of the life of a professional poker player? Uh, how that would look uh, starting out? Yeah, it's a good question. Like, did you have so, certain goals? Um, I did have sort of big picture goals. I didn't have any really like short term goals. Um, essentially, the way things went for me was I completed three semesters at university. I was asked, you know, if I was going to pick a major and I said, no, I'm just going to go ahead and do my own thing. So I left to play poker and, um, my, my mother was more on the fence and, uh, she said, okay, you know, your dad thinks it's an all right idea. Um, I just want you to pay me back for the money that I contributed towards tuition. I was like, you know what? That's completely reasonable. So I did that. I maybe had like a 20K roll or something at this point. Um, some of the instances that I'd referenced happened after this point where, you know, I started rebetting more and learning a bit more about the game. Um, so yeah, I 
I apologize. What, what was the exact question you asked after I went? Kind of what or... your expectations were when you started okay. out yeah, playing yeah. poker, right? You have a certain idea. Oh, I'm turning a professional. So now my life will be in a certain way, right? And then usually when we actually turn pro, I mean, sometimes it aligns, but sometimes it, it, it doesn't align as much as we, we thought it would. Yeah. So I'd read a thread on 2 plus 2 from sort of an older married guy. I think he had kids, not totally sure. And he described some of his experiences playing pro. And it seemed kind of grim. And I wasn't really that excited about it. But there was a part of me that wasn't sure it was going to be that way for me. Um, and I think a lot of this comes down to just how much you really enjoy playing. And for me, I've just been fortunate that I've always really enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, that was the case here and i didn't find it that challenging to put in volume um maybe a year or so maybe less than that six months into you know, sort of taking it really seriously and it being my sole focus um i was connected with some friends who wanted to get a beach house in jersey for the summer and you know essentially just have a grind house away from home um and that was great uh, learned a lot and really, uh, you know, ascended up the stakes at that time. I was playing pretty much all heads up, um, mostly cash, some sit and goes, a little bit of six max. Um, but the heads up cash games were just kind of, you know, uh, good value at that time. Um, was that yeah. like, I'm curious, like you, you, you were playing ring games, cash, then you transitioned to heads up cash, later you were transitioning into tournaments. What attracted you to heads up specifically? Was it just like the the money, the EV opportunity, or was it something about you know playing playing one on one with someone? You know, you're yeah, actually think, beating one person. I think it's more just the purity of the format. To this day, it is kind of I think the best game. Uh, it's just hard to find people that will play, and certainly people that are you know going to offer a decent hourly. Um, it's just the most interesting thing. The ranges are incredibly wide. Uh, of course, you're playing against the same guy every hand. Yeah, I don't know. It just really appealed to me. Um, the monetary aspect was real. It's early in my career. I was certainly looking to earn. Um, but yeah, the the uniqueness of, of the range composition was just not um, really like anything I'd found up to that point. And... Again, this is very much pre-solver era, so there was a lot of different strategies that people were implementing. Um, and I think that, you know, as we sort of touched on, that ability to take a new format and, in a way, make it your own and, you know, test out your mind against others, that ended up being, you know, relatively fruitful uh, for me and for my uh, friends, but really one friend in particular who I worked quite a bit with uh, over that time frame. I remember back in the days I've gotten the advice. I was mainly playing like six max and also full ring cash. And I remember someone or multiple people did advise me, you should play like some heads up to basically evolve your game. I guess because like you said, you play in a lot of wide ranges. So every time you get into a lot of spots, you get a lot of volume in compared to full ring where you're just waiting to flop a set basically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, full ring, especially like Adrian, it's, it's yeah, a very limited format. Um, Six max, yeah, there's a bit more going on. Certainly people played a lot looser then, so there was more action. Looser in some respects. There was a lot more flatting of opens, I'll say. Um, and yeah, 
heads up was just great fun. Uh, I look back on those those days and those memories very fondly. Hi guys, Renee aka The Wacko here with a quick Mechanics of Poker 2.0 announcement. In our program you will get access to 80 plus hours of content in which we will explain you all aspects needed in order to become a more successful poker player. Now one of these of course is the technical aspect of the game in which I'll be explaining you all the mechanics behind poker strategies. We'll be talking about GTO, exploitive play with an extra focus on the why behind certain strategies and why the population has certain leaks. And to increase your win rate even further, we've recently added a river bluff and bluff catching section so you can increase your EV when those pots become very big. Our mindset and performance coach Adam Carmichael, he took care of the mental game and performance section of this program in which he will teach you everything you need to know in order to break through limiting beliefs, better handle your emotions, break free from tilt and play your A game more consistently. And last but not least, we've added the management and optimization section in the program in which we will give you various tips and tricks to make it more likely for your poker career to succeed and how to continuously improve as a poker player. Now on top of that, this concept is continuously evolving based on feedback and suggestions we get from our community. Next to all this content, you will have access to our exclusive Discord community, monthly live Q&A calls, and one-on-one -on -one coaching session in which we are going to be reviewing if you have been implementing the stuff that we teach you in the mechanics of poker correctly. So do you think you have what it takes to master the mechanics of poker? Go over to mechanicsofpoker.com and maybe you will get a chance to work with me and Adam and make more progress in your poker career. But for now, without further ado, let's get back into more goodness in today's episode. Adam, you're a fellow, uh, fellow heads up enthusiasts. Same, same things that attracted you to the game. Do you also think it was like a very pure format? Yeah, I think there's something special about Heads Up because it's just like a one-on-one -on -one competition. It's almost like chess where you're trying to think a few moves ahead of your opponents. There's also exploit, re-exploit, especially if you get caught in like a long Heads Up battle for like four or five hours with one opponent. It almost like immerses you. It's almost like sports where you try to compete and beat that player. So yeah, I think there's something unique about that. In terms of what attracted me to Heads Up, it was a complete chance where my friends found the Shark Scope uh, leaderboard back in 2011, I think. And there happened to be eight players who were making over 100k Heads Up Synagogues. So we had like a roadmap of what was possible in the future. Sorry, wait a second. There's a good chance there's a skill element to this Heads Up format. And there's these guys are making that there's such money. Could we be the ninth guy or the tenth guy on this list that makes good money? And then yeah, once I got into Heads Up, I got hooked very quickly probably within a month heads up was the only interest of playing but yeah i can relate to the it's quite a unique format also i think heads up creates unique emotional issues because like when you're losing you're losing to this guy it's a bit more personal and i had battles throughout my career where there was just months of playing the same opponents now all of a sudden you go to bed and you didn't just lose money you lost to that guy so when you wake up in the morning you've got to try and beat that guy so uh, you, you try to remove that personal the personal touch you try to get less detached attached to that but there is an element of Either they win or you win. And yeah, I think there's an element which makes it fun, but also, uh, yeah, there's, there's some challenges that come, come heads up as well. All right, I'd love to take the story along the lines of your initial successes. So we've got basically uh, your start at 10 Pro and you're starting to uh, 
uh, your post not two plus two, you're getting a good network around you. I think looking at your career, it seems quite obvious from the outside that you've always been around good people and in a good network. How much did that help you in your initial success, having the right kind of people around you? And were you were you consciously cultivating that or was it just a kind of natural evolution from post on two plus two and, and sharing your own journey? Yeah, I think I got pretty lucky in the early days that I just, you know, got matched up with good people and you know, I just got along with them. In the times where I met them, they wanted to spend time and, you know, led to uh, that that beach house in Jersey and then eventually getting an apartment outside DC. Uh, and then, you know, the year after coming to Vegas and having a lot of success, uh, my first trip there and eventually buying a house where I bought a big house and moved in a bunch of my friends. Um, so yeah, that was kind of just a snowball effect uh, in that respect. When did you first realize that poker was really going to work out for you? Because we talked about the challenges those first 18 months, but kind of from the outside looking in, it almost seems like your progression to playing high stakes and being very successful was fairly quick. Almost like you're figuring out the game. Next thing you're living in Vegas, playing super high stakes. How did that period go? And first of all, when did you feel, first start to feel, wait a second, I'm, I'm onto something with poker and there's big opportunities here? Yeah, so... Um, I'll, I'll answer the question in two ways. In, in a in a practical sense, it was really that time spent in Jersey. Um, I went from probably playing, I don't know, one, two, two, four to like shot taking 100, 200 in a matter of months. Things just went exceptionally well. We put in a ton of volume, working really hard. Yeah, just putting, you know, good minds together. Anything's possible. Um, previous to that, even before I'd gone to college, I remember one night um, was hanging out with some friends and yeah, I just remember leaving that interaction. It was nothing even really that happened there. Um, but, you know, we sort of went our own ways and then I was like, Hey, I'm just going to like go play poker tonight. Like, why not? I, you know, hit up some other friends and went to their game. And just while I was on the way there, I kind of just realized like, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And it was just very clear and I had just like a confidence that I don't really know that I had felt about anything else in my life at that point, uh, and certainly not to that degree. Um, so yeah, it was the, a big catalyst for me to just you know take it seriously, just having this sort of emotional excitement about about the game. Um, and then, yeah, obviously you have all the experiences to follow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think sometimes when you just put your head down and get immersed in something. Everything that happens after that is almost, I wouldn't say irrelevant, but it just happens almost organically. And for you, being obsessed with poker, you were sharing your, your life story on 2 plus 2 a lot. Other players were doing the same. This just led to more situations that unfolded because you were immersing yourself in that poker journey. And then once you hit the pause button on life for a second, and you look around, you're like, oh, wait a second, we've, we've come pretty far here. This is pretty a pretty cool story that we live in. Yeah, I watched um, the, the high stakes living with, I think it's you, Tony Dunst, and Dan Smith in Vegas. I think you're probably around 23. I think the timestamp was 12 years ago. Uh, but yeah, I just want to talk about that period because looking at that house, it reminds me of like university days for myself, but obviously none of the baller stuff. You guys live in a really nice pad in Vegas and you're all playing really high stakes poker, but the house looks a bit like chaotic, so to speak. There's a lot of like beer pong tables. There's all sorts of fun. You, you, tell, you can tell you guys are having a great time. I want to know like what were some of the challenges of being in that environment? So uh, the way I could see it, the, there's a few of you, maybe three to five of you living in this one house. You're grinding super high stakes poker, but you're also living a very fun lifestyle, having parties, doing lots of fun stuff. 
So what was life what was life like back then and what were some of the kind of challenges of being in that environment? Yeah, great question. So my first summer in Vegas, uh, I had very uh, profound success at the World Series. I played 10 events, cashed in five, um, made a final table, got second, and then got 18th in the main event. Um, so I was like, wow, this is incredible. The following year, I definitely let hubris get the best of me. And I decided like, okay, I'm young. I'm not rich, but like I'm doing pretty well. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to party. And I think in many ways I was overcompensating because uh, I didn't really have this sort of, you know, preppy, popular experience in high school. And then in college, you know, it was cut short by my interest in poker and my social life was fairly lacking. So I think I was making up for lost time in that respect. Long story short, I decided that I would just basically drink every day over the summer. And it was fun because I'm friendly and I had a lot of people at various tables I was playing uh, at the World Series that I knew. Um, but it resulted in me playing like, I don't know, 22 or 23 events and cashing in one of them. So pretty stark contrast to the previous year. And it kind of made me realize, hmm, this is probably not going to work out. Um, so yeah, I started taking things more seriously and accepted my fate that like, you know, the same hard work I had to put in in the early goings or the same hard work I had to put in to achieve something is the same hard work I'm going to have to, you know, continue to put in the discipline I need to sustain that thing. Yeah, I think it's an interesting kind of evolution to go through where you're having fun, having a great time, but then almost like reality kicks in and you, you almost like, wait a second, maybe I need to reevaluate how I'm approaching things. And you can tell for you guys all living in the house, you're having an awesome, awesome time. But at the same time, poker was also evolving to get a little bit more challenging. And at least you could see uh, you guys would probably have to upgrade your approaches to poker to have like long-term success. And when did, when did you realize that it wasn't going to be all fun? Because myself, like when I got into poker, I flew to Thailand with some friends and we literally created a grindhouse away from distractions. And we actually made it like a very strict zone. We were doing like really strict sleeping patterns, eating really clean. And we just did this because we thought, right, let's make, let's rig everything in our favor so we have a chance of success. There was another group of poker players in Thailand who had a house similar to yours and they were playing beer pong, partying all the time. And we were like, how do these guys play poker in this environment? This is, this is, we couldn't do it. So for yourself, like obviously you're living kind of, you've lived both lives. When was the moment or when was the kind of shift for you when you thought actually uh, maybe living this kind of party lifestyle to maybe compensate for not having that time at college? When did you kind of transition out of that period? Well, it was not too long after the aforementioned World Series experience where Black Friday happened. And I was like, okay, this is a game changer. Um, I, you know, all myself and all my friends felt like, you know, the sky is falling. Didn't really know what to do. Um, eventually made the decision to move to Toronto for a period of time with some of my other friends. And, uh, you know, that was just a sort of another very clear indication that this is something that, you know, it's going to have to be taken really seriously. You know, now traveling outside the country, to pursue it, um, you know, the easy money was largely gone at that point. Um, it, it really is the cliche, like you don't know what you have till it's gone. Like looking back, I mean, it was just insane. Uh, but yeah, that very much showed me, um, you know, it's not always gonna exist this way. And in many ways that was good. Um, I needed to kind of learn that lesson. Uh, it certainly came very swiftly. <laughs> But yeah, it was it was ultimately for the best. 
Yeah. How challenging was it for you to reinvent yourself when you had the realization that poker is going to get more challenging going forward? Because you can imagine a lot of players in your same situation were almost like, all right, the fun's over. Let's do something else. The, the good times are done now. Whereas you instantly went, oh, lesson to be learned. Let's reapproach poker with a different lens. How challenging was that to uh, almost like, because you've had a success up to this point, things are going really well, being quite easy, so to speak. And now we have to uh, go back into poker. It has, it's going to be challenging. So uh, yeah, how, how, how hard was that period? Yeah, it was tough. Um, not going to lie. I, I also had this experience where, you know, I descended so quickly um, the ranks of heads up and I was mm, somewhat of a top dog in that uh, field in that era and then you know i had a bunch of money tied up in black friday uh i you know did, wasn't doing particularly well in live tournaments um i just had you know some monetary issues and i was playing with like too much ego kind of feeling like i deserved it more than i really did um so i had to sort of come to terms with a lot of that stuff in myself I think in certain ways that maybe not in a direct sense, but indirectly led me towards spirituality and, and self-realization a bit. Amazing. Yeah, we'll go deeper into uh, your spiritual pursuits as the conversation goes. But for now, I want to take the conversation to more of a dark place. And I want to look at your rock bottom moments. And I have three of them that you mentioned in the questionnaire that we sent to you that I want to look at them and almost like go back to that moment in time and the lesson that you learned from it. Because I think for yourself, your evolution is quite clear that you're someone who learns a lot of lessons from things going badly in particular, and you can reinvent yourself. So uh, I'm going to go through the three kind of rock bottom moments, and we can just basically hopefully come with some lessons that you've learned from each of them. So the first one was playing big cash games and having huge losses and feeling completely lifeless. So first of all, take us back to that period, and what were some of the lessons you had to learn throughout that? I mean, I think the, the biggest lesson in hindsight was just, you know, have more reasonable bankroll management. Uh yeah, just, you know, when things are going so well, much like we were just discussing, easy to think they'll just continue to go very well. And then, as you pointed out, reality will sometimes set in. And yeah, I mean, it, it sets in quickly and it doesn't feel good when you lose big amounts. Um, yeah, I had some obscene losing days in hindsight. And it wasn't obscene for those games, uh, mm -hmm. but just, you know, monetarily. Um, and then I had some, you know, incredibly winning days and the elation is, is great there too. Um, and I'll just mention that I, I would like to think I learned from good experiences too. It's, you know, uh, much more productive, but it does require a certain amount of wisdom. And I think these days when I feel like extremely euphoric, I appreciate that. And I also take it as a sign that I might not be in the clearest mind to make decisions because yeah, it's just a, you know, it's an inflated state of happiness and it's not going to to last to that degree. Mm. Um, yeah, sorry, did I answer the question there? Yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, I think it's important to learn from both the good and the bad experiences. Sometimes the bad or the challenging experiences are easier to learn from because they have such a heightened emotion and a problem that we want to fix. We don't want to be in this situation again. Therefore, mind's going to overdrive to try to fix that. So for you, it was a simple lesson, but a valuable one in terms of bankroll management. Don't play these crazy games. It's going to lead to these this kind of variance. And yeah, I don't want to put myself in this situation many times going forward. 
All right, the second uh, rock bottom moment I want to go back to was going deep in big live MTTs and torching of stacks. What was it about that period that was a lesson you need to learn and take us back to that period? Yeah, um, I was probably even in, you know, whenever it was that I wrote that too hard on myself. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to say in hindsight that the stacks were torched off. And then sometimes, in some cases, they, they certainly were not played optimally. Um, but I think this was one of the challenges I faced moving from cash games to MTTs. Like, it, it was double-edged. It, it worked in the sense that I was able to build up big stacks and play very fearlessly. And I think at the same time, I didn't really um, uh, appropriately appreciate the differences at stages of tournaments where you want to take risk or... Um, you know, how certain ICM components play into decision-making um, and, and probably to some degree how, you know, you should play against certain players. Um, so yeah, it was, yeah, a, a steep learning curve in that respect. Yeah, perfect. And the final one was a very specific event where you bubbled the 25K at the Bellagio WPT on day four. And the reason this hurt so much is you went against your intuition and you were losing giant pots. So take us back to that tournament and what did that teach you? Yeah. Um, well, for starters, I just made kind of a, a really bad play pre-flop where it was like four-way limps and I just completed the small line with 10-3 off. I guess up to that point, I had just never learned like, hey, you shouldn't complete these hands multi-way. Like, it's not a good idea. The board came 10 high, and uh, one of the players who had overlimped that three streets. And it was not, uh, I don't remember the exact board. It was like 10, 7, deuce, deuce 4, maybe, something like that. Just bet, bet, shove. We are like maybe 25 blinds effective. Um, but it's just not a spot where players in that era would find a ton of bluffs. Um, there's only so many kind of natural bluffs, at least I think for how people used to play, but it was against a sort of more creative player. Um, and yeah, I think I, you know, as far as my intuition goes, if I'm recalling correctly, I just sort of knew I was dead and I just sort of talked myself into it because I had top pair and it's just kind of a dumb, yeah, it was just a bad moment. Um, I remember that tournament quite vividly. Um, my, my friend ended up winning and uh, I was you know, quite happy for him, but I really don't think I played that well. And I think, I don't remember exactly when that was, uh, but it, it was definitely within that time frame of, of transition and turning points for me. Um, and I, I can pick out you know, certain instances over my career where certain things are happening with my understanding of the game and I'm just not playing my A++. And I feel like when I have had my best results, I am. Uh, so yeah, this was certainly an instance where I was not. Mm -hmm. So going against your intuition, how does that feel for you? Because I can picture yourself being someone who trusts yourself to go with your own judgments. And I'm guessing it's quite painful when you don't allow yourself to, to go with that intuitive feeling. And I've heard you speak on other podcasts and interviews about having some like self-sabotaging traits and winner's tilts. Did any, of these, did any of these play into that? And when you go against your intuition, what do you feel is the error there, right? Because we could say there's certain times where we, we might not want to go with that intuition. Why do you feel like in that moment or in other moments, um, it's painful for you not to, to trust your intuition? I guess on a fundamental level, I believe that, you know, you have to trust yourself to succeed in a highly competitive sport or industry like poker. Um, so... 
yes, there's a logical element, and I think that uh, they they work in tandem. I don't think it's you know this or that. I think it's you know, this and that. Um, as far as why it hurts so much when you go against it, well, it's sort of like you know the answer and then you do the other thing because you convince yourself otherwise. Um, I, I will say that I think you have to be at your best for your intuition to to really be sharp and to be worth trusting. And there's certainly moments where I can acknowledge like, you know, maybe it's 30 minutes before dinner break and I'm kind of hungry. And I just feel like, hey, I'm not at my best right now. And I might give up some true value by not trusting myself as much, but it's just sort of the safer way out. And I don't like to play poker like that over the long run, but there are there's a time and a place for certain things. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to touch on that you almost need to fine tune your intuition and you need to be aware when it's maybe not a good idea to fully go with your kind of reads in the moment based on other factors. So for yourself, is there anything that you do in your warm up or in game to uh, ensure that your intuition is sharp for those games? And like you mentioned, like when you're hungry or towards the end of the session, is there any other kind of guardrails you create for yourself when you go, right, it's actually not a good idea to uh, push my kind of exploits in, in this moment? Um, so something I like to do before I, I play poker is just play like speed chess. I think it just sort of gets your mind going and making quick decisions and thinking on the fly. Um, but other than that, I, I think just being well rested is, is really important for me being well fed, um, having done some degree of physical exercise so that I feel comfortable sitting for long periods. I find that to be, um, fairly helpful, although not necessarily day of. I found that doing exercise too intense in the morning before sessions leads to me fatiguing more quickly. Um, but yeah, I just like to keep it simple with that stuff. Uh, I think discipline is good, but for me, having too much of a disciplined routine, I uh, found that that doesn't really work as well. Yeah, it's almost just doing the things that make you feel good and you feel sharp, you feel ready to execute your strategy. And yeah, that's kind of your own personal routine of things. And I know for yourself, you've mentioned having a bit of flexibility is important. Other players do well, like Rene, with a bit more structure. But yeah, finding ways to feel good when you play is kind of the, the summary of the above it all. All right, so I want to now take the conversation to your reinvention, we'll call it, or the shift to spirituality. And when that started to play a more important role in your life, so I think the kind of way to segue into this is you mentioned poker was no longer fulfilling or as fulfilling at that time. And I think you started to get more into yoga and meditation in particular. So talk us through like what time period that was and what was going on with poker that led you to uh, to want to go for this shift. Yeah, so this was post-Black Friday. I'd been traveling back and forth between uh, Vegas and Toronto. And I wasn't really loving the, the live cash game experience. I hadn't like fully transitioned into live tournaments while I was still playing. I guess I just kind of felt a bit uncertain about my life. At this point, I'd moved out to Vegas. I left my friends and family behind in New York. And yeah, I just felt like I needed to kind of take time to more deeply understand myself, my life, where I was, society, reality. Um, yeah, and that was, you know, uh, kind of the beginning of it. Um Let's see. I started watching various YouTube videos. Ram Das was someone who I, uh, you know, came to really appreciate the messaging from. Uh, I started reading the Carlos Castaneda books. Not sure if you're familiar with those. Uh, those were quite interesting. And uh, yeah, I got fairly into psychedelics for a little while and opened.
opened my mind, opened my heart. And uh, yeah, just had some new experiences that uh, just helped me kind of better place myself within the world and have, uh, yeah, just a, a better idea of, uh, you know, I guess what I was doing and, and, and my purpose and uh, everything just made more sense. And I've kind of been able to take that forward with me since then. Yeah, I think spirituality can be quite a broad kind of concept for a lot of people. But to me, it generally means like a connection with something greater than yourself and trying to seek meaning and some sort of purpose to what you're doing and your existence, so to speak. And it can take you many directions and where you're going to go with it. And for you, I know it's been a very um, eventful kind of journey. I'd like to know what you define as spiritual, spirituality for yourself and what falls under that and how it's been helpful for poker and life when you've been on this exploration. Yeah, I, I like your definition, just connection to something greater than yourself. Um, in this case, you start to get into sort of the issue of definitions, um, whether you want to call it God or the universe or life, just all that is essentially having some kind of relationship with everything is, you know, has been integral for me. Um, as far as how it affects poker, I think I see poker somewhat differently than probably a lot of my peers where I, I see it, you know, kind of in, um, in context of everything else. And although that doesn't necessarily have a direct reflection on strategy, I think it helps me uh, keep going when times get tough. And yeah, I don't know, I just like to see things holistically. It, it just feels more correct, I suppose, or it feels better, let's say. Would you say it helps you detach more from poker in terms of the specific meanings you give to uh, winning, losing? Do you feel like you can see it from a more zoomed out perspective that allows you to uh, not take things so seriously in the short term? I definitely think it helps with losing. I don't really get upset uh, much from losing. I'm, yeah, I've gotten a lot better at, you know, if I play a hand poorly, especially just kind of letting it roll off my back. Um, and then as far as wins go, just, you know, being appreciative, being grateful, understanding that this is not something that's going to happen every time you play. And yeah, just taking it for what it is and just being truly um, happy when when they occur. Mm. Yeah, I think one of the challenges for poker players is when they start to realize that, wait a second, there might be more to life than this game of poker and there might be more meaning to it. And then poker can seem almost at odds with that. It can almost seem like poker's pulling you one way and then you're trying to pull away to get more kind of clarity of what kind of your real purpose in life is. So for you, I know you spent some time in India. I'm curious to know, like when you were going into this realm, how you were able to uh, kind of combine poker. Did you take a break from poker for a while to kind of almost like find what you wanted to do with life and then come back to poker with a new perspective? Or were you kind of juggling them, them both simultaneously? I was definitely juggling them. In hindsight, I'm not sure how wise that was, although I did have a lot of success over the course of this time frame. Um, yeah, it was, it was a very interesting phase of my life. Uh, it sort of culminated in me having a little bit less interest in poker for a period of time, but that was in large part because I had sort of influences in my life which were not um, in my best interest, let's say. Uh, it would be interesting to see how that phase would have played out if I had 
um, you know, just stuck around the people who were integral to my initial ascent more so. Um, yeah, it, I, I don't think the spirituality itself uh, or that new understanding or, or frame of reference for, for life, let's say, uh, was, was so much a deterrent. I think in many ways that actually encouraged me because it gave, uh, you know, new meaning and understanding uh, to life and to poker within that. So what was some of those new meanings and understandings that you came to? What was some of the, the mindset shifts when you started to uh, seek poker in a different context? What are some of the, the main things you, you noticed? Yeah, so I think being able to kind of clarify, you know, what intuition was and, you know, having maybe ways to define or categorize things that were happening to me already, but sort of just felt like one-off instances or or foreign events. And I, I didn't really understand them. Uh, so that was pretty exciting. Um, also having gotten it more into breath work generally and understanding, you know, the human body, getting more into yoga, understanding, uh, you know, what being physically active, I, I was pretty lethargic through um, I guess most of my life up to that point. So seeing how exercise, uh, raising your heart rate, all that stuff affected my play. And, um, yeah, that was all very interesting. I, I think that, uh, was in large part, you know, what made poker pretty exciting with those new understandings. Mm. So you mentioned three things, which kind of all go together, yoga, meditation, and breathing. I'm curious to know when you first started experimenting with these practices, what were some of the kind of changes you noticed? I know you mentioned you feel more in with your body and yeah, I'd be interested to know how that played out in terms of your performance. And I'd love to know what you're currently doing in terms of your current practices around all yoga, meditation and breathing. Yeah, so uh, it helped a lot. Um, I did, you know, go on a pretty profound heater <laughs> during that time frame. Uh, full disclosure, I was smoking a lot of weed during that time and it also I think was helping me kind of with where I was at. I eventually came to realize that it wasn't sustainable. And, uh, you know, I guess it, this probably contributed to, you know, a little bit of the loss of interest uh, in poker where I had to, you know, reinvent myself in a way because I got so used to playing in that elevated state. And then when I, played without it, I kind of felt like I was missing a little bit of that spice or that essence. Um, so that was that was tricky. And yeah, learning uh, how to play in a sober mind again, uh, it did take some time for me to readjust. It wasn't like I really forgot ideas, but there's just a certain creativity that was lacking. And I knew that it was possible to, to have that uh, in just, you know, normal waking state. But to go search it out and find it and be able to, to bring it into my play, it did take some time. Um, as far as what I do now, yeah, I mean, I, I have certain breathing techniques that I guess I've just learned a lot over the years. I don't really, like I mentioned, I don't really have much rigidity. Um, the, the only thing that I'm pretty disciplined about is um, if I'm going to play, and ideally most days, although my sleep's been a bit chaotic for a number of reasons lately, traveling and such. Um, I like to meditate for at least 10 morning, 10 minutes when I get up in the morning. And I find that just sort of sets me on the right path for the day. Uh, beyond that, sometimes I'll do some breathing, uh, whether before I play or at the table or on breaks. Um, 
but yeah, just being light and relaxed is honestly, I think the most important thing just to not overthink things, to not take things too seriously and just to be at ease. If I can be at ease, I think I can play my best. Yeah. It sounds like it's all kind of come together in terms of you feeling more relaxed, like I said, more at ease playing poker and you've had to reevaluate and reinvent how you've shown up as a poker player. And at first, like there's been challenges. I think when you remove something that you're doing habitually, whether it's smoking weed, whether it's taking coffee, something that creates an elevated state, when you remove that in the short term, there's often a, a adjustment phase where it feels like, oh, I've actually gone backwards in this area and I need to re recalibrate. And a lot of people in that state will go back to the old habits because they feel like it just doesn't work. Sounds like for you, you were able to kind of stick with it, see like the long-term term benefits of being able to perform in an unaltered state, we'll call it. And it sounds like meditation, yoga, breath work allowed you to get more in tune with your body. I'm sure that's helped with your intuition game as well, which has been helpful for you. So I'd like to know now about your psychedelic experiences. So I think obviously meditation, yoga, breathing, very safe for anyone to uh, in, get involved in those activities and they'll see benefits almost instantly. Psychedelics, I always think, need to be taken with caution and with the right intention behind it. So yourself, first of all, what were your early psychedelic experiences and what was the intention behind, behind those? Yeah, I completely agree with everything you said. Uh, I think having intention is, is integral and sort of understanding that you know, it is a powerful substance, uh, whatever you're taking. Uh, you want to know what you're getting yourself into to some degree. So previous to having had any experiences, I read a lot of trip reports on Arrowhead and talked to friends of mine who had had experiences. Um, I was still pretty hesitant. And the first time I had uh, a very small dose of mushrooms was basically right after Black Friday, went over a friend's house and just sort of felt the the rumblings of an experience uh what it would be what would be essentially the precursor of one and i was like okay that's not that intimidating and had a couple more kind of experiences like that uh i would say from this phase of my life one experience really sticks out where i went to the mountains with my brother and uh some friends of mine a couple of people who were living with me uh during that uh, time period and took a fairly large dose and my takeaway from that whole experience was essentially just uh, feeling like I had remembered that I'm God lost in my own experience. And what it did for me was remove any sort of victim mentality, um, remove kind of any feelings of lack or um, how to say anything that happened to me. I just felt like, okay, well, if I'm everything, then this is part of my experience that I need to integrate on some level. And again, it just sort of, you know, furthered that very cohesive, holistic view on life and reality. Um, so that was huge for me. And yeah, again, to this day still is. Um, so I'm very grateful that I had that experience. Yeah, I think you can tell from the way you tell that story that it's had a long lasting change on you. And you had a glimpse of almost like a connection with, uh, let's say, a larger self or greater meaning. And then that stuck with you for a long time. I think with psychedelics, when I hear people speak about them, it can go, go two ways. One, it can be like a state that you had and then you go back to your normal living. 
and you want to get back to that state. I think some people use psychedelics as almost an escape from their reality to get to this kind of heightened state of being, so to speak, and they'll keep going back to it. And you'll see this with people who are going psychedelic retreats three or four times a year, always trying to get back to that end state. Then you get other people who will have a psychedelic experience just once or twice or maybe three times, and that has a profound impact on how they see the world, how they change. And I find it very interesting when people are able to integrate a one-off experience like that and have a greater kind of purpose or meaning to their life long-term. It sounds like for you, that's been the case. So from there, I'm curious to know how that changed things. Let's say you've had this experience with the psychedelics and you've realized you're God, so to speak, or you're connected to a larger meaning than you thought you were. How did that impact you day-to-day in terms of showing up in life? Well, um, it definitely made me reevaluate, you know, to go back to the beginning of the discussion, the beliefs I had um, just generally about myself, about others. If you see everyone as a part of yourself, as a part of one whole, uh, judgment becomes pretty superficial. Uh, A a lot of things do. Um, And again, that was, you know, a large part of why I then dove deeper into spirituality, self exploration, self-realization, wanting just to have, you know, deeper, greater understanding. Um, I became much less interested in TV, movies, pop culture. Uh, I just kind of wanted to retreat and, you know, go within uh, in many ways so that I could, you know, just take the time to, I guess, listen to myself or, yeah, just get in touch with myself. Uh, so there, that kind of uh, predated a roughly two-year phase where I was somewhat off the grid. I mean, I was still in Vegas, but um, was living uh, fairly um, antisocial, I guess, ascetic somewhat lifestyle. It must be interesting life to live when you're in Vegas, which, which is quite external dominated world, but you're running in a pursuit during those those years where most people are seeing the big lights and the big casinos and they live in a very outcome-based life. And for you, it sounds like during that period, you were starting to feel your connection to everything else and you were going internal and seeking more and more kind of connection to that state, but you're living in an environment which most people I'm guessing around you were not on an equally spiritual pursuit. And that's what I love about like the personal journey. It doesn't matter at all where you are in life or what environment you're in. You can be on your own journey throughout that. And the inner journey is always available. So yeah, it sounds like for you, uh, that kind of connection to the whole has had a big impact. And I'm curious to know like how that's impacted, like how you set goals and how you uh, move going forward. Because if we think, let's say uh, I had a belief that I'm separate and I need to validate myself and everything I do is a kind of stamp of on me, 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 and a very personal identity. That's going to impact a lot of my decisions from that kind of belief system. On the flip side, if I believe I'm part of the whole and everything's integrated and almost everything's connected in some way, that's going to change my way of going through life day to day. So for you, in terms of playing poker, obviously we can we can class it as you're an individual playing poker. But if you're seeing a bigger kind of meaning to this, I'm interested to know how that maybe changed your your goals, your pursuits within poker, and did you have to reevaluate the poker pursuit with a fresh lens? Yeah, I think I probably reevaluated it uh, in a variety of ways. And I, I know that, I don't remember exactly when it was, but I, I really had to come to terms with the fact that in order for me to benefit, other people had to lose. I think that was somewhat of a challenge for me. Um, as far as other day-to-day things, I think more so it just changed my, I, I, was, I was obviously engaged in different activities. But I think more so it just changed my perspective 
than a lot of my my actions. Uh, yeah, no, that's a good question. We'll go. I'll go with that. So, yeah. Would you say your perspectives haven't impacted your actions directly? Because I would say like once perspective changes, either two things can happen. Either you do the same things, but it's it, it's different. It's almost like you've got a new wisdom and your relationship to what's happening is different. Or that new perspective allows you to take a different course. It's like one of the two, it's almost like you're at a higher vantage point on the mountain. You can see more things going on. So you get to choose a different route or you get to uh, be more comfortable with where you're at. So for you, uh, do you feel like it was more the latter in terms of actions didn't change much, but you just felt um, more at ease with them? I think so, because I was still playing a decent bit of poker. So like I wasn't you know, purely removed from society and I was getting a decent amount of social interaction through just being at the table with people that I you know, had developed friendships uh, with over the years. Um, yeah, I got a lot of the partying out of my system when I was younger. So yeah, I think, I think, it, I think it is that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did the things around you change when you're kind of self-knowledge and your inner journey was unfolding did you feel like circumstances around you were changing in terms of success you were having things coming easier or was it the opposite was things were things challenging during that period when you were reinventing yourself yeah it went both ways um i was as i mentioned i went on quite a nice heater in poker but i also found myself uh you know not spending as much time with the people who definitely had my best interests in mind and just kind of exposing myself to uh, you know, different people, different communities. And that's always been something that I enjoy. I love meeting new people. Um, I just think it's so interesting how different everybody is. And I, I love that about life. Uh, but at the same time, if you get too close to some people, you can get burnt when you think, oh, every, like you can't obviously as a poker player, treat everyone you meet like friends you've had in this industry, uh, you know, for the better part of a decade or longer than that. So that was a bit of a wake up call for me in certain cases, but yeah, um, I, I, I think that's a, I think that's a good answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think for yourself, obviously you shared a lot of your journey. I think a lot of the people around the same time as you were very open on two plus two sharing, being very trusting. You guys were meeting up with each other, creating friendship networks and it takes an element of trust in people and the kind of curiosity to, to learn and meet new people that sometimes obviously you'll meet the wrong type of people or you'll put that trust in the wrong people, but you have to learn that the hard way, so to speak, almost like get burned a few times to kind of recalibrate that. But I do think overall, it's a really good, good trait because it allows you to uh, be authentic to yourself. You generally attract like-minded people for the most part who hopefully have your interests at heart, at least once you uh, filter out some of the kind of bad eggs, so to speak. You generally have a, a very good core group that can relate to you because you're authentic with them and they're authentic with you. So I think overall it's a, definitely a, a good skill. But yeah, sometimes you've got to recalibrate that in terms of yeah, who you let into your circle as, as things progress. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I I would never want to change in such a way that I you know left this part of myself behind. Um, but it is just, you know, sort of learning skill, refining it, honing it, understanding how to better utilize it so that you enrich your experience uh, in life. Ready for yourself, your inner journey as you've been evolving as a poker player. Do you feel like you've had to reinvent yourself as you've kind of grown more knowledge and grown more wisdom into your maybe larger pursuits? Yeah, yeah, constantly every year. Um, I mean, it's, a, it's an ever going, going process, right? You don't know what you don't know. 
So every time with the knowledge that you have, you feel like you've reinvented yourself, but then a year later you will have different knowledge. So you will reinvent yourself again, right? It's all, it's all perspective. And I think I went through various phases in my life where, uh, yeah, where I had to reinvent myself. I think also I usually like to step out of my comfort zone, try different things. And with that usually comes different experiences, different emotions, and since I'm quite aware of what's going on and I reflect on those emotions and I reflect on certain thoughts that I have or certain behaviors that I show, I, yeah, I'm, I'm generally just curious about myself, where that then comes from. And every time when you put yourself in a different situation and you're observative of yourself, you will get to know yourself a little bit better. So yeah, this is a, this is a constant journey in poker, out of poker. And I don't think it will ever stop. It's not like at some point I'm like, yeah, <clears throat> you know, now I got to figure it out because every time when, when you change your situation, other things will come up. For example, uh, I remember when I started, for example, twitching and it was already figured like, okay, I'm going to, you know, put myself in quite a vulnerable position, right? You're, you're, you're basically opening up your game to get roasted by the whole world, by the internet. So I already figured like, okay, if I'm going to do something, most likely certain emotions will come up. But I remember in early sessions, like ego straight away came up. Like people were making comments and I, I had, I felt like a natural, yeah, I don't know. Like the ego wanted to say like, uh, oh yeah, of course I can take down that guy. I can take down that guy. And I, I kind of already knew this, this could happen. So I spotted it straight away. And a lot of things, like I remember the first couple of Twitch sessions reflecting on it. Like, what did I just do? <laughs> then I would look at back. It's like, eh, where did this come from? But I find that quite experienced, right? People might often then shy away from doing in this example twitch for that reason but i actually think the opposite is probably true you should just go do it and then yeah and then use that information you feel a little bit uncomfortable or you would do some weird stuff uh but yeah then by putting yourself in that experience you can yeah you can find out why that was and and try to grow i think uh yeah i think it's just a random example of um of that I i'm curious based on uh what you guys were talking about uh chewy what are in your opinion? What are your in your opinion signs that players are ignoring their spiritual side? Like, what are some common struggles that you think spirituality could help uh, players evolve or be relieved from these troubles? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I will say that I'm not sure that everybody, quote unquote, needs it. I think some people are predisposed to operate in such a way where they just have maybe a more natural um, disposition towards the, uh, the lessons or benefits you would get from it. Um, that being said, you know, those are not the people who would be referenced in this case. Uh, I, I think anytime people are overly negative, um, or for me, I feel like when, uh, statistically improbable things happen over a long time frame, to me, that's kind of a sign or I take it as a sign, at least that I'm somehow missing something. And it's just, it's a good time to look deeper, whether it's, you know, an ordinary downswing or, or something else. Um, but I think anytime things aren't going well. Uh, or at least in the way that you'd prefer, let's say, it's a good time to look inside yourself. Where is the, 
Because when I think about spirituality and, you know, in poker, people obviously, the first thing they try to improve is their technical game. Nowadays, people are also way more open in terms of like mental game, performance. Where is like, where do we enter the spiritual realm? Because a lot of times when we talk about spirituality, I could basically put it under the umbrella of like mental game, mindset, uh, performance aspects as well. What's kind of the crossover to spirituality in that in that, in that that sense? You know, it's funny, like while we've been having this discussion, um, I don't talk about this stuff as much nowadays. It's just so much a part of kind of, uh, I guess, how, who I am and how I operate that I don't really know. I feel like it's largely just blended. I mean, for me, it's just all of life. Um, I think that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think putting it under the umbrella of mental game, of emotional control, tilt control, uh, it makes sense. Uh, it definitely goes hand in hand with a lot of these uh, concepts and ideas. But yeah, maybe, maybe different for different people. Um, not Not totally sure. I guess maybe I feel the same as you, which is reflected in why I asked the question, because I often cannot really distinguish like the difference. I just see it as you have technical game and then you sort of have the rest, right? And like belief systems and um, yeah, discovering yourself. For me, you could you could just put it under development, personal development, I guess, all the all these categories. I'm curious, like me, me and Adam, we have a coaching program, Mechanics of Poker. Shout out to the Mechanics of Poker. We have like technical, management optimization, mental game, performance, mindset. If I were to ask you, Chewie, we want to ask, we want to add spirituality in here. What are like some of the first lessons you would like to teach uh, players? Maybe you have some, I think you have experience coach, uh, in coaching other players as well. What are like some common, common, yeah skills or wisdom that you share so it's a good question um personally i i feel like one thing that allows me to stay in touch with myself is as you know there's a variety of spots in the limit where you can choose to randomize your decisions and i feel like if you are in flow enough in touch with yourself there's often a compelling reason to go one way or another. And I think developing some degree of efficiency, um, or maybe efficiency is not the right word, um, some degree of uh, autonomy, let's say, to be able to choose, uh, you know, based on not a sort of egoic feel of, you know, I want to bet because I want to win the pot or whatever, but a, a true deeper kind of, sense maybe a gut feeling is, is perhaps a decent way to describe it um i think that's one way in which it, it reflects well for me and i will still you know randomize certain decisions uh, when i feel like that's pertinent too but i like maintaining that degree of yeah you know, let's say autonomy and creativity yeah that makes a lot of sense and rng definitely takes it away i think i think randomizing is very much misunderstood and misused quite often uh, when I see other players randomized for a certain reason, like, um, and at some point they're, they're just rolling on every street. I'm like, do you even have a plan with this hand or are you just trying to RNG for the sake of RNGing? Like they kind of miss the purpose of why they were RNGing in the first place. I completely agree with you. I think also if you 
just say, oh, this is closed. I'll just r run the RNG. I think it also kind of stops your development because I'm more in the philosophy of, okay, if something is closed, it's an opportunity to make a good decision because we all know, you know, players don't play perfect. Blah, blah, blah. So every time when you're in a spot where you're not sure if going left or right is the right option, right? And the solver would agree, they would do it 50-50 because if he is closed, I think it's a good opportunity actually. Oh, in the future, what would be the optimal pure strategy in this situation versus... Uh, the general population or versus a specific opponent because if you don't really think about this kind of things i think you're just oh ah, it's close it's random i just rng it kind of stagnates your progress would you agree there yeah um in some ways you're diverting the responsibility of making a decision elsewhere i will say that if you truly feel torn something that sometimes can work is if you just rng 50 50 uh you you know get a certain outcome and then you might feel actually hey i really don't want to do that and that can be insightful as well mm -hmm. uh, that can work with you know flipping a coin for any sort of decision in life uh, but it's always interesting when you feel like okay now i'm resigning myself to this oh wait i actually don't want to do that or sometimes yes actually that feels quite good so it can be a way to kind of i think check in with yourself as well um, so long as you treat it that way yeah, I think this is a little trick that uh, our audience can use. If you're in doubt with something and you flip a coin for it, at the moment you're flipping a coin, subconsciously you will start hoping for the coin to fall on one side. So right. you actually know what you truly, truly want. Uh, now, actually, one one area where I I think RNG comes in handy is to overrate your natural bias. Let's say I honestly don't know in a certain spot and you're naturally risk averse. You will always fold the river, for example. You have a close bluff catcher and every time if you don't RNG, you just fold it and you end up massively overfolding. Let's say you're very curious by nature, you always call. So in these kind of scenarios, I do think an RNG can kind of help to keep your bias in line, so to speak. But again, I think it should be, okay, at this moment, I'll RNG my hand, but I'll mark this hand to see if I can make a better pure play on a later street. I, I just don't think uh, running the RNG should be the end of it, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm also curious because we exploitive players have this a lot. And I guess if you don't randomize in a spot that is randomized, you are, I guess, exploiting, right? Because you're taking a pure strategy. And you also mentioned like if you... If I would RNG a certain hand and I know it calls 50% of the time, fold 50% of the time, and I call and I lose, I'm like, well, my you know, I gave it to gave it to quote quote a higher power. The RNG decided for me. Whereas if you don't RNG and you make a decision and you're wrong, it's personal. So for the maybe for players who are trying to go a bit more down that route, how would they have to deal with that? Because I guess if you play a bit more explosive, more feelings of that come up than if you play quote, quote, theory. You can blame the GTO model instead of your own decisions. Yeah, I mean, you, you do have to accept responsibility and, and hold yourself accountable, of course, if you make a decision wrong. Uh, and, and in a larger sense, I think this is something that's beautiful about poker is it just really forces you to be very honest with yourself. And I suppose that could largely be termed like a you know, spiritual component as well. Uh, I think spirituality is largely about being honest with yourself, confronting yourself, um, you know, going face to face with who you are and, and what makes you who you are. Um, beyond that, uh, let's see, I had a thought uh, on the top. Ah, yes. So 
as you said, if you you know decide not to RNG a spot and you just take a pure action, this is, I guess, where I look at things maybe a little bit differently. Um, you're taking a pure action in that isolated instance, but if that spot comes up again, you might take the other side, right? And it's unlikely spots come up identically over time, but your opponent has no idea uh, in certain cases unless they're you know, truly like amazing player tapped in, uh, understanding you know how you're likely to respond. Uh, in which case, of course, that can really hurt you. But I tend not to really worry about that stuff too much, um, unless you know there's sufficient evidence that my opponent would have reason to believe that I'm very likely to take a certain action. And you know, of course, that that wouldn't be great. But uh, yeah, I I don't um, I don't mind that. Uh, that element of you know not RNG and and taking a, you know a certain action definitively in one case uh, because if that spot were to reoccur you might just be on the other side of the coin. Yeah, it's true. And like how you play versus one opponent, you might play different versus a different opponent. So in the end, your stats they sort of kind of balance out, I guess. So yeah, pe people people honestly won't know. I also think. Usually people are a bit too paranoid when it comes down to, oh, if I do this, I'm exploitable or I can be exploited. It's like, yeah, okay. Uh, usually those are thoughts of paranoia. I remember I looked at quite, quite a lot of data that actually she also shared in the mechanics. You don't really have to worry about, or at least in this case, online poker, uh, adjusting very hard to certain tendencies. It's like the 80-20 principle, right? It's like the most of the adjustment is done by a small portion of the players that are very exploitive players themselves. So, Maybe if you can spot those, the rest will just be there and play their game, usually, right? Uh, especially in online poker, you have other things going on. You know, I'm, I'm on multiple sites. I'm looking for games and playing a bunch of games. I'm not going to focus on one table where Chewy, uh, hey, Chewy went for, for a pure play instead of a mix there. You know, it's like, how will I ever find out? So yeah. uh, for, for the people uh, listening and they have a very strong voice in their head, it's very paranoid. Uh, yeah something something you should work on i'm curious like after going through kind of reinventing yourself uh how did your experience of playing poker change so the actual playing yeah um i guess it became more fulfilling i i think you know there was a large time frame let's call it when late 2016 through it was like a two-year time frame it was like two years after my two years of sort of removing myself um where i wasn't doing particularly well at poker uh i think i had to re-imagine myself within the context of the game and just in many ways remember why i played poker initially which is that it is fun and it's a game and i enjoy games and i enjoy and love poker especially uh, so, yeah, I think that was like a big um, switch for me. And yeah, it allowed me to you know, let go a lot of largely what you're describing now, which were sort of ideas that were plaguing my mindset because, you know, 2016 was sort of early Pio days. My mind was elsewhere. I had a lot of stuff going on in my life that was non-poker related. And I sort of missed the boat on the, the beginnings of that. And then as I sort of continued to play certain uh, you know, games, tournaments, live especially, uh, I would see players playing differently. I started to doubt myself. And 
um, yeah, I mean, I was missing out on, on learning, you know, new ideas and that wasn't benefiting me. But what was much worse than that was sort of the extra pressure, shame, doubt, guilt that I was putting on myself. Um, and, you know, with sort of a new understanding of, I guess, how to exist in the world, I was able to, to let those go. And it, of course, eventually led me towards the path of, uh, you know, pursuing studying poker in the modern era and taking full advantage of what these tools have to offer. Um, so you know, I like stories with happy endings and fortunately we have one here. So obviously, you know, poker has changed a lot pre pre solver era, post solver area. How did solvers impact your, your strategies and did you experience any struggles in the beginning? Like I said, you have a certain strong intuition you've built strategies over the years without using solvers. So I guess certain solver outputs will challenge certain things that you believe to be true that the solver says is not true. How did you deal with, uh, yeah, working with solvers when they came out? Well, I would say this is kind of an ever present challenge where you don't always have the, um, foresight or the ability to know how much to trust certain outputs. In large part, I would say pre-flop and flop are you know, fairly reasonable. Turn is good, and river can sometimes just be way off base because of how far off the beaten path you get. Um, of course, it matters who you're playing against. If you're playing against elite players, this stuff matters a lot. If you're playing against you know, non-elite players, probably doesn't really mean all that much, and you're back to square one of just playing a game like the good old days. Uh, and I, I don't mind that, and I think... That was something that I was more recently maybe challenged by. I think, you know, a better part of, of last year, I was maybe a little bit too reliant, but it was double-edged because I was having a lot of success in high stakes utilizing these uh, you know, strategies. And then in like mid-stakes or you know, lower high stakes, uh, I wasn't. And I feel like I was sort of missing the mark on some of that. Going back to the earlier days, I think I was in a receptive enough state that I was kind of just able to put to use any new idea, and there was such a large gap to fill. Um, so it wasn't until I kind of solidified a, a bit more of a modern understanding of how strategies look across various decision points and stack depths and, and so forth uh, that I started to then have to have these you know, deeper questions of, when, where, why, how much, so on and so forth. I think you touched on a very important point there where you said that you then ask certain questions. So you already go into the solver with a certain curiosity, like when, why, what. How do you think, what is the right way, in your opinion, the right curiosity to enter a solver? People usually go to it to check if they play the hand well. But it doesn't really sound like that's kind of your 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 vibe with the solvers. Yeah, I don't mind doing that. Um, it I would say in times where I do that, it's more it's not so much to check my individual hand. It's more to check if I had the idea right about the spot. And if you have the idea right, then often you did get it right with your hand. Um, but I think the way that I learn is is largely just extracting heuristics in various situations, and then being able to appropriately place those heuristics in-game based on, you know, whatever type of spot you find yourself in. 
you know, understanding when certain sizing schemes make sense, uh, understanding when you want to lead, understanding, uh, yeah, what thresholds are for value betting or for calling down, uh, and then how to adjust those. I think that's really what I, I find most beneficial um, about these modern tools. Yeah, I completely agree. And this is kind of what I meant with <clears throat> when you look into a solver, you're looking for a certain, in your case, you're looking for what, why, certain heuristics, right? I mean, you play MTTs. I think MTTs is one of the most complex. So instead of studying 10BB, 20BB, 30BB, 40BB, all the flops, you know, be before you're done, yeah, poker, po poker is already over, sort of, you know, you, you, you're basically on your, on your dead path. So that doesn't really help. You have, you have to get a few under your belt so you can have a baseline, right? So to map Exactly. Out. But but instead of studying like, oh, I don't know, 1700 something flops, uh, you know, you probably break it down to certain flops, a smaller subset. Uh, instead of just focusing on how everything changed, you might focus, okay, what are in general some heuristics I can use in low SPR situations, medium SPR situations, high SPR situations, you know, what, 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 what changes if, for example, he gets short and he starts to shove certain hands so he doesn't have that in his range anymore, post hop, what are kind of the consequences of that? You're trying to learn the bigger picture. And I think what this does is just, you know, assembling, let's say, 10 heuristics uh, that you kind of play from, right? That you use guidelines for certain bet sizings, guidelines for certain hand choice. I think these are definitely things solver can really help you with. But from there, also allowing that creativity that I, that I think you mentioned as well. And I can imagine, or personally, I struggled with this as well, where you kind of go through phases where it's too much solver, not enough creativity. And in the past, it might have been too much creativity, too little solver. It's like a constant, or I, I experienced like a constant, I don't want to say struggle, but a constant dance between the two, sort of. Yeah, it is a dance. and It's somewhat of a challenging dance. Um, I, I often think of it as like left brain, right brain, it's like creativity and logic, like artistry and science. Uh, it, it's, I'm, I'm very much a believer that it is uh, a synergistic blend and it is kind of the responsibility of the individual to figure out, you know, how to, how to mesh these things together. Um, and it's, uh, you know, the, the picture is never fully painted, like, like you're saying, you know, understanding these thresholds. Yeah, I mean, I understand some of them, and I know that there's so many more to understand. And then the MTTs, especially, a lot of the models only account for you know uh, equal stack distribution. I mean, you have mixed stacks. You know, the big blind only has four blinds, or you know, the opener has seventy, and there's some amount of ICM in play, and everyone else has fifteen. I mean, there's there's so many things that uh, you can account for uh, that can slightly adjust strategies and. I quite like that. I think I really actually, um, I, I find that very enjoyable whilst playing, not knowing, but having some idea and being able to on the fly kind of grok it and, uh, you know, pick out the, the meaningful ideas that, that would inform the strategy, especially when you have like fringe hands. Yeah, I, I think that's a cool part of poker. Which I think also plays a bit into your strengths, right? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, you also mentioned that, you know, you, you kind of went off the grid for like two years, less input. Usually when you have less input, when you do a lot of meditation, you also get more in touch with how you feel. How do you feel like that period has strengthened your intuition? 
because we when we when we think about poker hands, we have like the logical side that, like you said, made right side of brain, left side of brain, the bio side, the logical side. Then you have the intuition side, and I think especially people who are not really used to using their intuition. I guess everyone uses it to a certain degree. Uh, how has your trust and your connection to your intuition uh, strengthened or increased over that period compared to so you were playing a poker hand before those two years and after those two years? How much more in touch are you now with your intuition? Well, I'm definitely more in touch with it. Uh, I think in large part, I was able to just understand it better and yeah, give more life to it, I guess. Appreciate it more, trust it more. Um, as you said, everyone kind of has it. It's just a matter of how much you're willing to let it in. Um, yeah, I can recall certain instances before that where it would just sort of pop up and I didn't really get it, but then I started to feel like, okay, there's something here. Um, so yeah, I would say it was just a phase that allowed me to clarify um, experiences like this, which previously were, yeah, just sort of a bit foreign. I didn't quite understand them. I think it's a problem that I often have when you're in, let's say you're in a wrong, a bit of in a bad state of mind, you're in a downswing, then your intuition can often, often be quite sensitive to bias as well. So I think it's very important to to have developed a certain level of self-awareness that you can kind of spot, okay, this this emotion is purely biased or this is my intuition, right? It's, it's like almost there's there's various people, you're, you're in a poker hand, you're making a decision, there's various voices shouting at you. It's like you have your bias shouting at you, you have your intuition shouting at you, you have logic shouting at you, and you're like, guys, calm down. I'm trying to make a decision here. And I guess throughout that period, I can imagine that voice, or I, I guess the other voices, they silent it more, and you're more in touch with your intuitive voice. Right. When you become more present through, for example, the act of meditation. Yeah, definitely. But I, again, I would say that that is kind of an ever present challenge and maintaining that connection further. Um, I don't really think much like the other things we're discussing. I don't think that is a process that ends. You, know, you keep going with it. And I would even say to a certain degree, while my on the other side of the coin, logical, theoretical understanding has improved uh, that. It works well with intuition generally, but in the uh, you know specific identification of intuition, it doesn't always assist in that. So, yeah, it's double-edged. I'm curious. Uh, you mentioned psychedelics before. Have you ever done psychedelics and afterwards jumped into the solver? Uh, jump into the solver. I've tried to. I've tried to. Um, or study, play poker, study poker. Before, but studying while I was high was really, it didn't work at all. But I've played, you know, under the influence of cannabis many times, and that's gone quite well. So, yeah, I don't know. Nothing stronger, though, like psilocybin or LSD or anything. Um, yeah, right, well, maybe, maybe some for a future experience. Podcast episode two, we can, we can talk about all the strategical uh strategical uh progresses you've made during that uh, study session <laughs> perhaps maybe we have one together who knows yep S sounds like a great idea to me <laughs> hi guys renee aka the wacko here with a quick mechanics of poker 2.0 announcement 
In our program, you will get access to 80 plus hours of content in which we will explain you all aspects needed in order to become a more successful poker player. Now, one of these, of course, is the technical aspect of the game in which I'll be explaining you all the mechanics behind poker strategies. We'll be talking about GTO, exploitive play with an extra focus on the why behind certain strategies and why the population has certain leaks. And to increase your win rate even further, we've recently added a river bluff and bluff catching section so you can increase your EV when those pots become very big. Our mindset and performance coach Adam Carmichael, he took care of the mental game and performance section of this program in which he will teach you everything you need to know in order to break through limiting beliefs, better handle your emotions, break free from tilt and play your A game more consistently. And last but not least, we've added the management and optimization section in the program in which we will give you various tips and tricks to make it more likely for your poker career to succeed and how to continuously improve as a poker player. Now on top of that, this concept is continuously evolving based on feedback and suggestions we get from our community. Next to all this content, you will have access to our exclusive Discord community, monthly live Q&A calls, and one-on-one -on -one coaching session in which we are going to be reviewing if you have been implementing the stuff that we teach you in the mechanics of poker correctly. So do you think you have what it takes to master the mechanics of poker? Go over to mechanicsofpoker.com and maybe you will get a chance to work with me and Adam and make more progress in your poker career. But for now, without further ado, let's get back into more goodness in today's episode. Uh, you, you, you played a lot of cash in the past. You played heads up, ring, then you switched to tournaments. Do you did did you struggle at some point like switching into tournaments? And what do you think are like some common mistake cash game players make when they switch to tournaments? I definitely struggled. Um, I mean, I think cash players playing tournaments make a lot of mistakes. Uh, I think one is that they just don't have any sort of sense for. Um, how the different stack depths affect opening and three betting ranges. I think they often, although not always, fail to adjust for the ante. Um, I think often they kind of over-adjust for ICM, although that's not always true. Sometimes, you know, I kind of mentioned an experience where I was way under-adjusting. So that can kind of go both ways, depending on the individual. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just a completely different format. Um, so yeah, there's, you know, just having, having like lower SPR on average is, it's just totally different, uh, you know, really having to understand what the thresholds look like for stacking off, uh, when you're kind of in foreign territory, it's just not, not always that intuitive. It can be in some cases, you just have top of range all the time. So that's pretty easy. Have a oh, pair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for, for me, for me to do when, when I play uh, uh, lower SPR situations, tournaments, shopping and stuff, I know that I'm naturally, my bias leans towards being a bit more nitty. I like to be in control. I don't like to be forced to stack off light. I like to, I don't know, I, I have this certain risk adversity in me. So I always know that in short SPR situations, in cash games, for example, three by four by pots, or in tournaments or in cash games, if you play shallow tables, stuff like that, 
I just know that like when I say, oh, okay, I'll stack this hand off at, or I'll check race, stack this hand off at 15 BB, it's probably closer to like 20, 25. And the same, like if I, oh, I'm going to shove ace eight here, then probably it's ace four plus, you know? So it's like, I, my, my intuition is wrong. Like I haven't studied this, this well enough, but from what I've studied this, usually it's like what my intuition says, plus, you know, like 20, 25% ish hands, then, then you're probably good to go. That's kind of my, my guideline for tournaments. Yeah. It's a good realization to have to kind of understand where or how you miss the mark uh, in certain cases. And it brings up kind of an interesting, I guess let's call it like a philosophical tournament idea, which is let's say you're playing, you know, a, a tournament where you have you know, an incredible edge over your opponents. Um, you know, how much risk should you take on in certain cases? Like if it's early enough in the tournament, sure. At certain later stages, I mean, some plays just print. Um, in other cases, it's not so clear. Uh, I think this is where you're sort of having to split hairs, but I think it's where a lot of edge comes from, is really being able to make correct decisions, um, practically speaking, against players that you do have a large edge on and not just falling back into that um, complacency of, well, I know that like, you know, in equilibrium, you know, hands much better than mine would stack off. It's like, look, if the guy just has a better hand than you, you're going to lose. You're going to walk out of the room. You're going to feel dumb. So you have to like keep it real with yourself. And yeah, uh, I guess that's, you know, where, where I think in live poker, especially, you can gain a pretty significant edge uh, just, you know, being very honest about, do I have the best hand or not? <laughs> so, you know, sometimes that's a good question to ask. Yeah, that's it. That, that it's, it's interesting because like GTO poker focuses a lot on like playing from your strategy, from your range. And then we actually forget to ask this question. Like, what does my opponent actually have? Oh, yeah. Wait, maybe versus that range, I should do something completely different than, you know, based on what my own strategy wants to do from like an equilibrium GTO perspective. But it's because of the way solvers work, we stop to ask these type of questions. Whereas a solver actually based on, you know, we had to put in something for our opponents and he's doing something based on that as well. Right. But I feel like a lot of very GTO oriented player, they kind of forget to ask this question. Like, what do you actually think your opponent has? And what's like the optimal line to take with your hand versus that hand and yeah. i think everyone has been there that, that I, I immediately had a flashback where you know you make a quote quote equilibrium play you bust a tournament like you said you feel a bit like an idiot but you feel like an idiot when you stand up you walk outside the room you look around and you see fish everywhere like oh why did i just do that it's yeah. like <laughs> and this is something indeed like a solver doesn't take if you just look at one output it just shows like hey this is the output, but it doesn't take future play in consideration, right? The fact that, yeah. or for example, I remember in the, although in the beginning of my career, I would play a bit more live entities. And if I would be moved to a bad table to just be like, hey, this is a bad table. I'm going to sit there for a couple hours. Let's take it easy before I get moved to a better table with bigger opportunities, right? To, to make money. And this is, again, something that the GTO mindset players, they kind of forget about these type of aspects. And I would say, even like sort of future EV is true in cash. Let's say, let's say I, I usually see it like this. Let, let's say you have a fish who comes sit down. He has one hour to play. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm in the small blind and the fish has folded. And now I can choose my strategy. 
let's say I go for a limp, a limp only strategy. Let's 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 take that one. That's I think probably the worst because on average I will take quite a lot of time playing a limping strategy. So the pot mm. in that hand will take longer. So statistically, I will play less hands versus the fish because the fish only is going to play one hour and he's going to leave at some point. So I would much rather, for example, play a 35% PFR only because I just fold and the next hand I'm dealt, I get to play more hands versus the recreational player. And that means, you know, that my future EV... So basically I need a stronger hand or I need to play a strategy that... In order to play my hand, it has to have more EV because the future EV of the next hand is bigger, right? It's just like in tournaments, actually. It's the same in cash games. Um, and I think these are considerations that people yeah, don't often make because we're too focused on just playing our hands correct quote, quote, correct uh, in in that moment. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point. And I think tools will evolve to uh, be able to account for these kinds of things over time. And uh, I'll certainly play some role in helping to build those. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely very interested in, yeah, what is, what is possible um, as far as modeling things go? Um, you know, the, the purely static outputs. And there even are some, uh, there is some ability to to model with FGS, but it's fairly limited uh, and certainly not telling the whole story. And if anything, it's mm, painting an inaccurate picture because of the fact that it is only partially accounting for, uh, you know, the future hands dealt. But sometimes it does line up with intuition I've found and, and that can be useful. Uh, just in, in, in the sense of verifying what you think is already probably accurate. Yeah, that's kind of this the 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 problem with with the static model. You think then in the near future, for example, we use solvers now that are based on more static models. Do so you think in the near future we will get similar products out there that are more like AI based that can take all yeah. these things in consideration? Definitely that. Um, I have sort of a. Um, so full disclosure, like I have a, a poker tech startup. Um, I'm pretty in, interested in this space and uh, it will launch later this year. Um, but yeah, there's a variety of things that I, I see happening already uh, and things that I want to do. I mean, I think one really cool idea would be um, sort of a back engineering of, uh, of solutions. Like if you play a hand in a certain way and you get told like, okay, that's not equilibrium being able to see what would have had to have happened uh, from your opponent for that to have been reasonable. Uh, where mm. You can then look at it and be like, oh, does that actually make sense? Sometimes it will. And sometimes you'll be like, yeah, well, my opponent probably wasn't jamming their whole range. So, well, what are you going to do? We'll get them next time. So it's almost like an intuition check. In some ways, yeah. Um, I mean, I think being able to quantify intuition some other intangibles that would be a whole nother project uh, i would love to be able to do that in some ways that is what mm, dr joe dispenza has done or tried to do or at least shed light on generally um, i don't know if you've been to any of his retreats i went to a week-long no. retreat uh, with my oh wife. cool yeah it was it was really awesome i would i would definitely recommend it Met a lot of no it's definitely it's definitely on my list yeah we had a great time um but yeah it if and when you go, you'll have some more exposure to some of the stuff they do. It's very much in this in the same vein or line of thinking. If we uh, think of 
like the solvers or for example the stuff that you're working on where do you think they what how do i ask this question where or what do you think makes them gain an edge over humans and where do the humans gain an edge over the machines in in real life well the machines certainly have an edge in the sense that given the inputs they don't lose um, the humans have the edge in that the inputs are not static and the models are not static the gameplay is not static um, i know there's been a lot of discussion of like you know if io played a tournament like would it win and it's kind of a question you can't really even answer because what is inevitably going to happen is it just Basis is zero percent node. Also, Pi is just a heads-up program, um, so you actually need better software to even be able to sort of broach that that line of, of thinking. You're just going to reach zero percent nodes where the solver is just guessing, or um, maybe not purely guessing, but it's for all intents and purposes guessing. You'd rather have a human play zero percent node than a solver, where it's just like, oh, I don't know what to do because this didn't happen, you know. The player didn't min bet three streets, so you know what are you, what are you supposed to do with that? Yeah, exactly. It's not, it's well, not really insightful. Whereas, for example, if you have an AI that you give, I don't know, a hundred million, hundred million online poker hands, he says, "Oh, I've seen this situation uh, thirty-five times over one hundred million hands. I know exactly what to do here." Right. Right. Yeah, I can see that in the near future. We have like the new, new, new generation of players that like, wait, you guys grew up with PioSolver. How did you, how did you guys make money back then? This program is antique, right? And we're like, wow, no, this next generation stuff, man. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, you know, if we relate it to chess, what we've seen thus far is somewhat equivalent to like the deep blue era with Kasparov, where we kind of saw, okay, computers really can hold their own. And this is, it's real stuff, like the industry is changing and the game is changing. And now we're starting to see that next generation, kind of like the Leela Chess, Zero, Alpha Zero, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't miss out on that. It's a little bit too exciting for me. So I'm a poker nerd at heart. Like I want to know, you know, the answers essentially. I want to see, uh, I want to see and be a part of, of the industry growing and changing. I find that. Yeah, very, very enthralling. And for the people that are listening to this and give up all the hope of poker, like many have done before, when Huts came out, then when Solvers came out, what, what do you think remains to be the hope? Like, just like with Solvers, for example, they are there, but they're still a lot of players, for example. They're not using them or they're using them wrong. Do you think it's going to be the same with like AI-driven technologies that you'd be like, oh, wow, this is available and you know how to use it? You're like, okay, poker is dead. But luckily, there are still players who don't use it or are going to use it incorrectly. I guess using it incorrectly is a bit harder, intuitively. Yep. Ideally, ideally, as the programs become better and more efficient, using it harder, you know, not as much of an option, or using it incorrectly is not as much of an option. It's just easier. Um, but I, I think that there's sort of this simultaneous elevation where the games get harder, but then the access to information gets better. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I noted earlier, you know, pre-Black Friday, there was a lot of just free money. Free money has sort of slowly become less and less. Um, and yeah, poker has become more competitive, uh, but I don't really think that's too surprising. And uh, yeah, I think that's just sort of how it's going to be, but I, I don't think poker will ever really die. 
obviously there are certain challenges that poker faces, um, online poker especially, fair play and whatnot. Uh, yeah, I'm also very interested in maintaining the integrity of the games, uh, although that's yeah not a sort of individual challenge. That's a more collective challenge. Yeah, it's a it's a future. I I, I think. The only thing we can, uh, like, I think the only thing that will help you moving forward and with you, I mean, you know, people listening, kind of having a adapt or die mentality. That's kind of my motto. You just should adapt to the new circumstances the best you can. And that's it. If you don't, you die. Like I said, people who have died when online poker came out, when huts came out, when solvers came out, various people kind of, you know, who didn't adapt with the new culture, who kind of stayed in like, no, but I want poker to be this way. They kind of fell behind. So that's kind of all you can do, in my opinion. Again, moving forward, if this stuff comes out, I'll be heavily using it. And I'll be trying to see how I can help it to become a better player. And I think that's kind of the only way forward. Adam, how do you see the, the future of online poker or poker in general? Because I guess we there's always a difference, right, between the future of online poker and poker. I think live poker is not really threatened. I would like to get your thoughts on that uh, as well, Andrew. Yeah, it's hard to predict, obviously, based on what you guys are saying. It's very kind of exciting times in certain aspects, the game evolving and strategies and learning tools becoming more high level. At the same time, it becomes quite scary of like, as an individual, how do you kind of make money in poker going forward? So uh, I'm not going to get my crystal ball out and try to predict that. I think you're kind of... Um, Summary in terms of adapt adaptability becomes more important as things move fast, as technology becomes more apparent and usable, the ability to adapt to those and use them for your situation becomes very important. So yeah, being able to pivot and then the day poker comes down to, can you find games where you have an edge? And when you go to live games, MTTs, there's many opportunities to make edge. If you want to play the toughest online games in the world at the high stakes, okay, that's going to become more challenging and you need to level up. It's the same like if you look at sports, if you want to be the best in the world at your sport, you're going to have to go ahead to head with some very, very accomplished people who are also having that same goal. So yeah, I think there's always, in my opinion, the next, let's say, five years of poker, many avenues to make money for players just starting out now or who are already doing really well. I don't see this kind of doomsday mentality that some people see. It's the funny, I think all of us got into, me right in particular, around Black Friday time. That's when I started my career. I started my career two months after Black Friday. And some guys were sending me articles going, Adam, do you not know you've missed it? It's done. The poker's done. I was like, I missed it. I was reading these articles, seeing that poker's over. And I was like, all right, I'm I start the wrong career path here. And I think the next thing always from the outside can signal the end, whereas really it's the next evolution. What's the next evolution of poker? I think it's, it's, it's an exciting thing from one aspect. And as long as you're willing to adapt, I think you'll you'll find a way hopefully to uh, to make it fit for you, which is, which is good. All right, cool. I want to kind of transition the conversation to a bit of reflecting. First of all, I want to wrap up the story of your kind of story arch uh, going through poker. I think we got to uh, around the time where you've went through your kind of reinvention. You've done a lot of your kind of meditation. You've removed yourself from poker. And I think you mentioned coming back to poker and having two years of results not going your way. So it's probably somewhere around 2017, 2018. Tell me through what changed from there and then how was your, how things gone the last year, two or three years from that moment? Yeah, so um, end of 2018, I had a huge score in Bellagio, five diamond. I got third for 800 something thousand. Um, and that did coincide with some new feelings towards the game or perhaps 
old feelings renewed. Um, and that really, I mean, obviously it's, you know, incredible life event um, that really reinvigorated me. And I got back into tournaments, playing, traveling uh, the following year. So had a decent amount of success in mid to higher stakes. Um, then 2020 COVID happened. So I transitioned online and that was really, I, I had started getting more into studying in 2019, but 2020 when traveling was no longer an option and even playing in casinos wasn't an option. That was when I really got heavy into studying. Um, and then that kind of has continued and I've just sort of, you know, continued to play bigger and, uh, kind of become somewhat of a mainstay in the higher stakes tournaments, at least uh, stateside. Um, I did just recently get back from a trip to Bahamas and EPT Paris, where I played some bigger stuff as well. Um, haven't made any Triton events yet. This hasn't really worked out schedule-wise, but I'm quite excited to. Seems awesome, really well run, and obviously really big events. Um, so yeah, that kind of brings us to, to modern day. I play high stakes tournaments, play mid stakes tournaments, um, I really like tournament format, uh, also from a practical perspective, a lot of the cash games in Vegas have become privatized. So as far as finding edge, like it doesn't really make sense to try and at least for me, like, I'm sure if I put in enough time, I could get in, I'm pretty friendly. And I think, uh, I probably would make people, uh, feel welcomed and enjoy my presence in the games, but you have to play that whole kind of pandering and political game. And it's just not really for me. Whereas tournaments, I can just go play. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I think the COVID period, like say 2020 through to 2022, uh, has been a very interesting uh, period for most players in their career because everything just got shut down on the live scene. And now all everyone's on their computer is playing online poker if they want to play during that time. And also you've got a lot more time to study. I think a lot of players through this time Actually, I actually speak to a surprising number of players who actually got into poker during that time. With like, all right, I'm at my computer. Now's the time to get deep into poker. And the games were really good. I'm not sure if the games you were playing were very juicy compared to what they normally were, but the online action across the board seemed to really spike. And it almost became this like new opportunity to get back into poker. And there wasn't many other options. It's like play video games or play poker because most of us are locked down or very limited opportunities. And I think it's very interesting how that's kind of been a segue moment for a lot of players' careers to get deep into solvers, to reinvent their strategy, and to become better players overall. Whereas other players might have shied away and went, okay, things aren't looking good right now. I'm going to go down another path and maybe drift away from poker. So I think yourself and other players I've spoke with have used that kind of period to uh, to study a lot. So would you say, um, was during that period of time you got deeper into solvers or what were some of the things you were doing during that kind of lockdown period? Yeah, so I, I formed a few relationships with um, friends who were kind of in a similar place as me, where some of my uh, friends I've known for a longer time in poker had you know, sort of elevated their game in previous years using these tools. Um, so, yeah, just forming study groups with people who uh, were kind of starting where I was at, a lot of experience in poker, not as much experience using these tools, uh, and, and just, yeah, using like figuring out how to use them more efficiently, um, how to extract useful things from them. Uh, and then just, yeah, generating lots of outputs was kind of what I spent a lot of time on. One thing I'm always impressed with is longevity. 
because longevity requires the ability to adapt to different climates and pools and to almost find a way to come out on top and do that over and over again. If you look at like the debates of sport of who's the greatest of all time in any sport, it often comes down to who could hold their peak the longest, who could almost like stretch out year after year of, of longevity of good performance. Everyone's got their own peaks of certain periods, but often longevity is a big factor, at least when I assess like who, who would win that kind of theoretical debate. Now for yourself, you've had a very long poker career, and I'm curious to know what you think are some of the key attributes that have allowed you to still be in poker now and have a success, and what's been some of the yeah kind of key attributes behind your longevity in poker? Yeah, I mean, I think number one, far not, you have to love it. Like, if you don't love it, the people who just play poker because uh, they see, you know, this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, it just eventually fizzles. It just never works out long term. You can do it for some period of time, but eventually you're just going to spin your tires and it's just not going to, you're just not going to be able to continue to, you know, stay strong when it's not going well. Um, I think like you have to be very disciplined with, you know, the amount of volume you put in, uh, with the amount that you study, especially nowadays, um, you have to be humble. You have to be honest with yourself. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with, uh, a number of my friends about how I think poker is actually a great vehicle for self-growth. And I know some university professors uh, will use poker as a way to um, articulate or, or show uh, you know, different ways of problem solving and how those apply to the real world. So yeah, I think in many ways, uh, the more I evolve on a personal level, the more my poker evolves with it and vice versa. Uh, I, I see them very much uh, intertwined. Uh, that's probably somewhat unique, maybe to myself or perhaps to us seems like we're kind of on the same page with a lot of these things but uh yeah i don't, I don't think that's a particularly common view mm -hmm. it's almost like the loving poker is the prerequisite and if that isn't true for you at some point like you said you will run out of motivation if it's just for the material things or the money so that's got to stay for a long time and i think that's often a challenge for players because i think as you do evolve you, your motives change while you play poker. Obviously, the fun element might stay. But for example, the, the climate's very different. Like yourself living with friends in Vegas, studying poker and trying to come up with strategies is very, very different to looking at solvers in 2023 and trying to come up with strategies. The game is the same on a fundamental level, but it's different. And you have to evolve how you think about poker to keep that love going. So I think like as we talked about before, the ability to adapt your approach to learn and to improve in over time needs to be there to keep that love for the game. Then the thing you mentioned, which I thought was the most important, was your own self-growth and your growth as a poker player being the same pursuit. I have many conversations with players who are almost like haven't linked those two things together. It's where like they think poker is very separate. So it's like my poker life and my life. And it's these like kind of very separate entities. And they almost like, oh, when I have success in poker, then I'll put more time into my growing, my evolution. And I think like players who have a lot of longevity in poker, they find a way to merge those two very quickly. Not very quickly, but at some point, your growth as a poker player and your growth as a person, we almost can't separate. We'd struggle to define a line where I say, how are you growing as a poker player? And you wouldn't tell me how you're also growing as a person. I think once you've got those things working together, you're loving the game, you're growing towards something meaningful and poker is the vehicle for that growth, then you can stay in poker for a very long time. You add into that a good network of people you're around to inspire you who are kind of on the same journey. And now you've got kind of a, a recipe, so to speak, for a long poker career. So yeah, I think you've 
nailed all the ingredients in terms of what um what I've seen around players who've had long careers. And sometimes sometimes that happens organically. And sometimes it takes work. Obviously, yourself, you've had almost like stop and slow things down, do some inner work to recalibrate. But it's never taken you too far from the poker path, which I also find interesting. That's yeah, poker has always been a part of your life. Has there been any times where you've seriously questioned if poker was going to be a thing for you? Like almost like I'm going to walk away from poker. It's it may not be what in line with my growth. Has been any doubt in moments like that? Yeah, it was definitely that phase where I went through that transition in the, you know, let's call it 2017 was a particularly challenging year for me. Um, and I remember around the time that I was sort of, you know, recognizing that I actually do still love playing and I, I want to stick with this. My wife asked me, like, do you want to play high stakes again one day? It was interesting because I hadn't really thought about it. I was like, yeah, I think I do. And then I sort of had just, you know, kept asking myself, like checking in with myself and asking, like, as I continued with it, like, is this something I'm interested in? And it quickly became apparent that it was. Um, so, yeah, certain, you know, sort of milestones along the more recent past uh, have been particularly fulfilling because of that, you know, moment of sort of setting out on this path. I'm not I'm not a super goal oriented person generally. Um but yeah, generally having direction or like super objectives, uh, I'm a fan of. So in this case, yeah, it was it was quite nice to have that. I like that idea of testing your assumptions and testing your beliefs. And when your partner asks you, do you uh, want to play high stakes again? If you ask that to you when you're 23, 24, you're like, yeah, of course. Like the answer is 100% yes. But as you evolve as a person, you've sometimes got to test those assumptions. Is this still true? I'm now 30, 35, and do I still want to play high stakes? I think sometimes we struggle to, or we forget to reevaluate what we do play poker for and what was the meaning behind it. So uh, I think it's really nice for yourself. And sometimes we need a catalyst moment around us, but to reevaluate, like, is this still true for me? Do I want to play poker for, for the same reasons? And if not, what does that mean? How does poker now fit into my life? And yeah, I think that's a, a healthy thing for most of us to do to reevaluate why we choose certain behaviors and if you've held on to a certain assumption or belief for a long period of time can you reevaluate that given your current circumstances and does it hold true and if it doesn't hold true can you let that go because i found let's say with your assumption let's say you didn't want to play high stakes poker let's say the answer was mm, i'm feeling some like the answer is no to this question but your identity is still high stakes poker player or your peers around you and validate you as being a high stakes poker player now you've got some realizations there wait a second do i keep doing this because that's my identity or do i need to somehow drop that and, and reinvent myself again so yeah, i think that becomes a, a challenge if you do uh, run into those moments where you do have to reevaluate what your decision points yeah what really well said um and it, it, it reminds me of i guess another core belief of mine which is um, I, I really do things for their own sake, not because of what I think I'm going to get out of them. And I feel like that um, that helps sort of uh, you know cut to the chase with the actions that I take in my life. Um, and I, I suppose I yeah you know, I probably mess that up from time to time, but it's a, it's again a nice thing to have like sort of guiding principle. I love that doing actions for their own sake on their own sake because that's very powerful if you apply that to everyday life and anything you do, if you did it for its own sake, that's the end of the discussion. Someone goes, why do you do that? And the answer was, because I do this. There is no, and there's no way to go. It's just over, game, job done. But very often we don't live our lives that way. We actually live, we do something to get somewhere. 
we do something for the outcome we will get in the future or as a byproduct, whether it's achievement, whether it's respect. And if the, the goal or the kind of the, the principle that you live by, I do things for their own sake, it completes a, a very short loop very quickly. So yeah, I think that's a, a thing we can learn to apply. Can you learn to do things for their own sake? And if not, why not? Do you need a, a motivation or external thing to make you do the thing or to do the thing that you're you're currently doing? Or can you find a way to uh, feel like you do it for its own sake? So in terms of practical, practically applying that, how do you feel like you uh, live by that? Let's say you... Uh, your day to day and you do things for their own sake, how do you stop the mind from potentially going to the future? Because if I think for myself, like one of my challenges is I spend so much time in the future. I'm, I'm always like create this magical place in the future, which is going to be better than where I currently am, which often makes me miss very important moments where I know the moment in front of me is really key, but my mind's already thinking how this is going to lead to the next one. So for yourself, doing things for their own sake, how do you either live by that or remind yourself when there is the temptation to uh, go to the future? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, again, I, I probably mess this up sometimes, um, but I, I think the the way that I sort of let it, um, you know, take impact in my life is, uh, yeah, just feeling out what like what feels best. Um, in, in some ways, I guess you could say it's a way that creativity enters my everyday life. Um, yeah, I guess with, with as far as like letting future events impact the the current ones. I'm a very visual person. So I think like I, I see a lot of images in my mind and the way I would sort of look at it is you see the current event and you see where it goes and then just maybe drawing it back in and like not acknowledging that future event. I, I think one of the ironies of you know, doing things because you think you're going to get something out of them is that's actually much less efficient. And when you do things, you know, purely for their own enjoyment, uh, like you said, it, it completes the loop quicker and it actually just sort of gets you closer to what it is that you're interested in. I think like you know, your interest, your excitement, your your you know, internal joy, um, it's a it's a quicker, like it's a it, that's your true north star. Like that's where you should be going anyway. And it's going to lead you to more of those things. And when it doesn't, it's going to highlight uh, you know, inefficiencies in your belief system or your actions or your personality structure. Um yeah. Yeah, very, very interesting. I can picture my own kind of relationship with meditation. When I first got into it, the kind of motivation behind having a long-term habit was I heard Tim Ferriss say on one of his podcasts that 80% of high performers meditate on a regular basis. And I was like, hmm, high performers meditate, 80% of them. I want to be one of them, so I'm going to meditate. So I had a very goal-oriented relationship with meditation to get an outcome of being a high performer and all the kind of benefits, I started reading up all the benefits you could get from it. And this for the first probably six months to a year of meditation was the goal to get to an end state. And then there was a nice transition point, probably a year of meditating most days where I was like, ah, meditation is just its own thing. Like I feel good during it. I feel good after it. Is there anything else that I need from it? And it became a very nice, um, it changed like, the way I was coaching as well because I was trying to teach players to uh, kind of create a habit to get an outcome from it. And then also it become a, just a, a, an activity that completed itself. And as I went from my life, Recently, I, I tried to apply the same thing that you're saying to uh, can the action itself be the complete nature of why you do it, how you feel about it, how you do it, and just it almost like completes its um, its own journey and you don't need to, to take you anywhere. And that becomes challenging because I think especially as poker players, we're very goal-oriented, at least a lot of players are. We see outcomes, we see uh, where we want to get with things, but can we find a way to uh, engage in our behaviors as a, a means to an end in themselves? And if not, why not? Can we reevaluate our relationship with things? So yeah, I think it's a an ongoing pursuit with with our lives that we live, and yeah, hopefully it 
gives players some incentive to uh, to question those things. Yeah. All right. Okay. So when reflecting on your career, what would you describe as a particular high point? I know we've talked about a lot of your successes. What would you say was a point where you feel most proud or you look back and it was a period that gives you some joy to to reflect on? Wow. Um, there's quite a few. Uh, I've told this story on a podcast before, but I will tell it again because it sort of fits in. So that end of 2018 phase where I placed third in that Bellagio tournament, uh, it was a big breakthrough. You know, I was in a slump and um, outside of, you know, sort of the financial benefits, which were significant, uh, it was, you know, also just that sort of, I was on that teetering edge of, am I going to stick with poker? I don't know what's going on. I you know, wasn't able to find results and you know, rediscovering my love for it. Um, but there was a particular instance in the tournament where we were 24 left and I ran like a really big bluff in a spot where, uh, you know, from a purely logical standpoint, doesn't really make that much sense. You know, it's like two giant stacks going to war. Um, but I don't know, it just felt right. And it uh, ended up working and I was pleased with myself in hindsight that, uh, you know, I was able to, outside of all the other uh, pressures, you know, kind of take the action that I felt was uh, correct in that moment and stay true to myself. Um, of course, one could argue that that is results oriented and that, you know, sort of, and this is the, the ongoing struggle that you face uh, in poker and in postmortem analysis is, you know, just because it worked doesn't mean it was always correct. But, you know, I think what I've noticed over a long time frame is the players who seem to have the best results are the ones who take the correct actions. So, yeah, it was it was a very fulfilling uh, experience overall. And that was one moment that stuck out over the course of that uh, you know, tournament itself. Did anything feel different about that tournament or about that moment in particular compared to the rest of your career? Obviously, it was a pivotal win point. But what I'm trying to get at, I remember listening to Liv Barry talk about the very important kind of tournament in her career, where everything has felt different. Like the energy felt different. She felt like she was going to win this tournament. I think she even said she heard like almost a like voice saying, like, you're going to win today. And this tournament, I guess, felt different. It was very pivotal for her career going forward because it, it created like a, a bankroll to kind of progress from. And it's hard to kind of pinpoint because it almost touches on this kind of hard to kind of grasp on kind of spiritual nature. But was there anything about that tournament where it just felt a little bit different? Like things that aligned differently, maybe you'd let go of expectations differently, maybe more, more relaxed going in. Was there anything different about that tournament other than just the outcome itself? Yeah, definitely more relaxed going in. Um, I, I think I have a, another story that might be more of your interest for this question. Um, this was sort of when I was just getting into more uh, spirituality, yoga, meditation and such. Um, I had a pretty significant out-of-body experience at the table where I had called a three-bat and I just kind of felt myself like float up above my body where I was and I sort of had this you know like more expansive view and I just I kind of got this intuition that my opponent had a hand that made trips and uh you know I yeah it was just interesting I mean the, the hand itself wasn't that interesting I had open in the straight draw and called twice and pulled the river um but yeah it was just a very sort of unusual experience I haven't had anything really quite that powerful since um, but looking back, perhaps it was, uh, you know, a catalyst by which my ability to heal and trust intuition uh, was solidified to some degree. 
Mm. Would you say an experience like that allowed you to trust yourself more? Would you say like that feeling that connection to yourself, this kind of one-off kind of moment where you left your body, so to speak, the tables, do you think that had like a long lasting kind of impact on your either your ability to stay on the path towards self-discovery or to potentially draw that connection even stronger to your intuition? Did it have any sort of long lasting effects? Definitely. Um, anytime I've had experiences that transcend physical reality, I feel that those are uh, most integral in kind of, you know, keeping me going. Um, I, I feel like that's one of the most interesting things about life. And particularly, I would say, our culture, you know, Eastern cultures, it's a little bit less um, taboo or unusual to discuss these things. And I think in, in many ways, the culture is changing. And certainly there's been pockets of uh, Western culture throughout time, whether it's, you know, uh, the 60s or just generally kind of West Coast, the way it's evolved, uh, that's been more receptive to these ideas. Um, but yes, I would, I would definitely say so. It's, it's very encouraging. Nice. So what would you say is the biggest lesson that book has taught you? You can look back on your career and one lesson, maybe a surprising lesson, something that you wouldn't have expected to have gained on the book of suits. Anything that comes to mind? I think in an overarching sense, the fact that it has so closely aligned with self-development is not something I would have expected going in. Uh, and it's just, yeah, been so repetitive and consistent throughout my career uh, that my life has you know, sort of tagged along with my poker playing. Uh, yeah. And what are some of the biggest growths you've had as a person through poker? What do you feel like, why are you a better version now than you were before you played a single hand of poker? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I would say that um, having to deal with the highs and lows is it's actually not trivial. I think a lot of people, uh, I would imagine a lot of the guests you know, watching this or viewers uh, will have played some poker. But I think for people who are outside of poker, it's, um, it's probably imagined that the wins are much you know, easier to deal with and the losses are probably much harder. Um, and I think this is a challenge that I would say myself and a lot of others face which is you want to still be able to feel the sadness i think there's benefit in that i think there's you know ways in which that's actually healthy uh, or maybe not sadness but disappointment or uh, just loss generally uh, and then also feel the wins but not feel them to such an extreme that you get overly euphoric and make bad decisions or get overly depressed and hold yourself back and it's like pretty tricky to, to strike that balance I think dealing with the emotional swings that poker has just sort of innately built into it um, and, and understanding how to manage those uh, has been something that um, I'm pleased with. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a very important topic to touch on where basically as poker players, we experience a lot of emotions that say through the highs and the lows and you need to find a way to deal with that. And I think a lot of poker players, especially early in their careers, think the kind of solution is to feel less to be more numb, to be robotic, to not have to experience the pain of losing. And this very often also means they nullify the wins. It doesn't feel as good to win. You almost like numb your emotional centers overall. I think the kind of 
where you've talked about it is much more healthy, where you learn to experience both the highs and the lows. You don't run away from anything. You almost become the experience of all of it, but also you don't get dragged around by any of it. You're not like super high when you're winning. You're not super down the dumps when you're losing. I think that's the ultimate place to be, to let everything in fully, to experience everything, but to not get dragged around by it. I think this is a, a, almost all poker players who've had a lot of longevity in poker have got to this point. Whereas players who are new out on their journey can't even imagine it because the, the highs are so high and the lows are so low that the thought of being quite balanced throughout it all almost seems idealistic. And they're almost like, well, yeah, but I've lost 10 miles today. How does that not hurt? And it's almost like it's almost this like hard to explain kind of concept of getting to a point where you're okay with everything. You're okay with the wins. You're okay with the losses. It doesn't mean they feel the same. It doesn't mean that going on the biggest downswing of your life feels the same as winning 800k in a high roller it just means that they just are you're okay with each of those i think if you can get to that point all of a sudden like your experience of life is completely different in every area because now nothing can hurt you so to speak because everything's in its own context if you win you lose and almost nothing well maybe some things but not many things in terms of results wise are as extreme as your poker career in terms of maybe some investments you have you could make some mistakes there but generally poker is one of the most volatile landscapes so if you can learn to be okay with everything that comes at you poker wise you've calibrated your emotional responses very well this generally leads to all areas of life i have many conversations every week with poker players who are struggling with their emotions in poker and almost all of them not all of them but a lot of them are fine away from the tables they have no problems in their personal life no problem in day-to-day life but the poker tables oh that's where everything comes up so that's the growth path that we've been talking about i think if you can yeah kind of stay with that and come, come to the other side yeah like that calibration of your emotional experience just makes the overall um experience of life much more fulfilling i do feel like it, there's a danger for certain players especially very logical driven players to want to uh, not experience anything, to not feel anything. And I've been around some of these players in real life, and I've noticed like their overall experience of life often feels quite null, or at least like not as heightened or fulfilled. And yeah, find a way to kind of experience everything, I think is the, the end goal. So yeah, I'm glad you touched on that. Yeah, well said, agreed. All right, final question from me. What do you think has been the greatest contributor to your overall success? So we talked about loving the game, being humble, having a lot of discipline. They've been factors that have definitely impacted it. Is there any other factor that has contributed to your poker success? Um, I would have to, you know, give a lot of credit to um, whether it's my wife or my family or just the friends I've made along the way. Um, just having good people around you, supportive people, loving people. There's really no greater gift than that, um, whether inside poker or out of it. And it's just a huge contributing factor to, you know, as we're talking about when things aren't going well, um, being able to, you know, just not focus on the game and focus on all the other great things you have in your life. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's kind of a slam dunk answer for this question. So what would you say to an aspiring poker player who's in their early 20s and they haven't really got a network around them or a big friend group? Let's say they're starting to go deeper into poker and they're starting to find themselves a little bit isolated from their current peer group and they hear you say that it's really important to have the right network around them, but at the same time, they feel like they're on a very solo pursuit, almost like a lonely pursuit of an online grinder. They kind of realize that it would be nice to have a network around them, but it doesn't seem to quite fit with their pursuit of winning and achieving a poker. Is there any advice you would give to that kind of avatar? I know there'll be those type of players listening who to maybe guide them at that decision point in terms of what do you do if you want to achieve at all costs at the moment and you haven't had the time or you're still working on developing a network or people around you who are going to be meaningful relationships. 
Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I think in some ways that's part of like the proverbial hero's journey. I certainly went through that to some degree. Uh, I, I suppose I did mostly have friends around for almost the whole portion of my progression in poker, but um, yeah, leaving family and moving to new places. Um, I, I think that there's also uh, you know some amount of of power in those experiences of um, you know solitary uh, poker playing, but definitely it's not going to last. So yeah, I mean finding people that maybe are playing the same games as you, or uh, I think you know if you're fortunate enough to find mentors, that's huge. It's obviously not that easy uh, for a variety of reasons. Largely, people are charging for coaching. Um, you know, maybe getting a coach and sort of meeting people through them or or just meeting people through social activities that are also playing poker and uh, yeah, maybe joining groups, group studies, sessions. Uh, I know there's a lot of forums uh, across different communities. Um, yeah, I think I think there's ways to meet people and it's just a matter of how how much it matters to you, whether or not you're likely to succeed. Mm. It's interesting how many players in situations like yourself, playing high stakes, have good networks around them. And it's almost like, it's one of those things where like aspiring players, I think sometimes can almost like forget or not understand how important it is to invest in relationships. And I think, especially your era was the kind of most, probably like out there in terms of sharing on two plus two, writing on forums, meeting up a lot more kind of frequently. And you guys, almost like your personality traits, attracted like like-minded people to themselves. And I do feel like there's, no matter what your situation is, investing heavily, or at least investing some of your kind of resources into relationships has got to be like the plus EV life play. Like regardless of where you're trying to go, you've got to find a way to uh, invest your time and energy into uh, nurturing relationships. I think that can be uh, a challenge for players who haven't already done that. If you're already a social person and you understand like having a good network is important, it becomes natural. Because often when I have this conversation with players, it's one of two camps. It's either it just naturally flows for them. They've always had good friends. Or it's like, oh, it's quite challenging. I have to almost like go out of my way to to, to speak with people, to, uh, to reach out. But yeah, I think trying to uh, find time to invest in relationships should be the the play for everyone. If you've got healthy relationships, make sure you nurture them. Make sure you uh, uh, spend time with people. And if it costs EV, so to speak, to uh, spend time with friends or connect with people, I think it's always worth it because as we've touched on now, your growth as a person links very heavily to your growth as a poker player. And yeah, I think relationships are for almost everyone going to be a, be a huge part of it. So yeah, great life lesson. And thanks for thanks for sharing your, your journey. All right, Rene, any questions for yourself? I'm 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 interested. You just thought, touched on the topic of EV, right? And you were talking about success. I'm curious uh, to ask Chewy, like, what your definition is of success? Hmm. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, what is my definition of success? I mean, I suppose that again, going back to childhood, the way that I was raised, like, happiness was always prioritized. Um. So I've kind of thought about that and I feel that that is actually something that is important for me to prioritize as well um I think freedom is is one of the biggest benefits that I found through playing poker um you know building your own schedule being able to spend time with the people that you want to when you want to being able to spend some money on things that are important to you taking trips traveling all that stuff um yeah, I guess just living meaningful uh, meaningful life and continuing to improve. 
being happy, enjoying your experiences, being grateful, uh, I guess being wholesome. Yeah, I don't know. All of it together. Meaningful, I think, is a is is a very good word. So if you look at your poker career in the beginning and now going forward, like you you've reinvented yourself, I think, many times through poker. What gives you meaning in poker currently? I think well, I think that is even currently changing to some degree. Uh, with the involvement of, you know, the tech side that I'm getting into. Uh, but beyond that, I think just playing, playing and meeting people, um, playing and testing myself, um, continuing to face the challenges that the game presents and seeing how they've changed over time. Uh, that is, that is meaningful for me and, and seeing that, you know, I still have a lot of room to grow in certain areas. Uh, I, yeah, I very much enjoy that. Yeah, and when you say areas to grow, as, as we touched on, right, it's not only poker, technically, it's so so intertwined, right, between the two, life and poker, it, you, you cannot really distinguish between the two. I've, I've had similar experience, I've done only coaching for quite a, quite a period of time, and I really missed being a, yeah, missed being a performer, like a poker player, and like the challenges that it gives. In one way, I was kind of, I was kind of missing the struggles, because I felt like, if you're a poker player, it raises the necessity for you to show up as a better version of yourself. And I noticed that when I was not a professional poker player, I kind of felt like I slacked off a little bit. I didn't really like the version of myself that much. And now that I'm back to playing a lot of poker, I'm way more, yeah, you know, you feel challenged, you feel more enthusiastic, you have more energy. Uh, not only, like I said, not not only in terms of my poker game, but also you know, start to work more with a therapist, doing like uh, more meditations, uh, manifestations, visualizations, you name it, everything, you know, to, yeah, to, to, to discover a, a better version of yourself or a deeper version of yourself or a different version of yourself, however you want to call it. So I think that that's, that's very interesting. Uh, in terms of like EV, you know, is, is a topic often discussed with players and how you treat EV and the decisions you make around EV. How has that evolved for you through life? I can imagine in the beginning, you know, you think about everything in EV and everything costs EV. So in the end, when your V is high, you do nothing else than playing. It's almost like an EV trap, I would almost say. You cannot do anything else because, yeah, your EV in poker is too high. So even if you would want to do something different, you sort of can't because your poker EV is too high. I can imagine, you know, when we're thinking about EV, it's only money. But throughout life, like you said, something that gives you meaning, relationships, how has like your view of EV and the decisions that you make based upon it changed over your career? Yeah, it, it definitely has changed. Um, I have been more willing to not play. I, I think I'm someone who putting in significant volume has very rarely ever been an issue. Um, and in some ways, not playing has been more of a challenge in some cases. Uh, and some, some days you can just kind of tell like this is you know probably not a good day to play and forcing it in those moments has led to uh you know just sort of unnecessary loss so i think those are the cases where if you look at it from a you know, purely ev perspective it's just like okay i'm putting in hands i have an hourly i'm, I'm earning here uh, but sometimes you can just kind of feel like today's not the day i need to just you know 
stay home, read a book, go out with a friend, you know, go on a jog, lift some weights, do whatever it is. Um, and being receptive to that and I guess trusting that intuition uh, has been something that I've done a better job of trusting uh, over the more, you know, the past few years. Uh, but yeah, still a challenge. Yeah, like 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 we said, right? Every every year, reflecting on it, you see that you've grown. The challenge will is endless, right? It's it's infinite. Um, I'm curious, like you've developed a lot of skills throughout playing poker. What skills do you think transition very well into quote quote normal life, and what skills kind of hinder you from performing at your best in normal life? Quote quote. Mm. So I think in normal life the skills that transfer well are problem solving and thinking on the fly and i feel like this is somewhat verified by the fact that a lot of poker players do find success in other industries that have these qualities you know as a fairly integral part of, of what it takes to succeed in them um the qualities that don't transfer as well i think are maybe maybe you know it's it's kind of the same thing where when you don't have to problem solve or think on the fly and you try to apply those qualities uh it's like well yeah those are good qualities but they're not what's needed really in, in certain cases um i guess this would the thing that comes to mind is like more artistic endeavors it can kind of go both ways i guess there but th that's just what's coming to me uh I, I think in many ways it is kind of how you approach poker that is going to determine how well your skill set transfers and yeah if you approach it from a more holistic perspective you'll probably be more able to adapt to other things i like what you said earlier like adapt or die kind of a big fan of of adapting as a general concept um but yeah, I, I do I do really believe that the poker skill set is very transferable. And uh, yeah, I enjoy seeing people who leave poker have a lot of success elsewhere. Often it is those similar industries, although I would say not always. In terms of your own experience outside of poker, you mentioned your tech startup. I think you've mentioned, I think you were working on a poker site in the past. I don't know how that how that turned out. But I think you've mentioned that you've tried other things outside of poker. Uh, any lessons learned in these areas that you're taking with you, for example, in your current tech tech startup? Like, okay, I learned a bunch of things along along the years. These things I should not do. These things I should do. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I ha I'm really grateful to have uh, an awesome mentorship in this case. Uh, I met somebody who is already very successful in tech. And they wanted poker mentorship, and I was interested in business mentorship. So, yeah, I'm seeing I'm seeing actually firsthand where the poker skills that I've learned and honed over the years are applicable, and where they're not. A lot of what I'm realizing about ex uh, excelling at business is that you have to have you know people skills, right? You have to be able to manage. You have to, um, yeah, just have a yeah, the types of things that are useful in poker, but I guess not necessary. Um, and then the problem solving is still is still solid. Like that's always going to be useful. Being able to see, okay, you know, 
given these parameters, you know, what is the right way to approach this situation and being able to hone in on the things that matter uh, and developing kind of the pattern recognition for, you know, similar things or similar scenarios that have occurred in the past. Um, yeah. You've, at some point in the beginning of the conversation, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, when you're on a little bit of a high, you get maybe a little bit overconfidence and you get some winner's tilt. Have you experienced something similar transitioning into other things than poker? Like, okay, I'm a great poker player. So, you know, I, I can do this as well because I'm good at poker, even though it has very little overlap. Kind of the, I, th I think the halo effect, they kind of call it. Yeah. Well, that was my first experience uh, trying to waltz into the startup world. Just thinking, well, winning in high rollers, this is going to be a piece of cake. And indeed, it was not. Uh, I learned very much the hard way. Um, in part, that was the poker site. Uh, it did actually end up launching, just didn't really gain traction. I found it very challenging to kind of take it past a certain point uh, without the appropriate mentorship. Um, and of course, lack of resources. I mean, you can only sustain something like that so long. Um, but yeah, it was definitely um, hubris on my part. Um, and yeah, some influences where uh, people you know, had their own sort of ideas and I was maybe, you know, caught up in the enthusiasm of others, but certainly not something that, uh, like, I, I was still very much at fault for the situations I put myself in there. It's interesting that you mentioned that part of the quote-unquote failure or why why, why it didn't go further is you lacked mentorship. And the first thing you mentioned in your new tech startup is you found good mentorship. So it yeah. seems like, you know, you, you've definitely learned from the experience. I can definitely relate uh, myself. I remember I was just focusing on getting to high six poker, made high six poker. And then I was like, okay, I want to develop into other areas as well. So then I went into coaching as I thought that was quite a natural transition. Try to start like a coaching side and stuff like that. But yeah, turns out that if you're a six poker player, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you can also run a business or that you actually would want to run a business. Because I do think, like I always have the 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 belief, right? We talked a lot about beliefs that I can make things work as long, you know, there's always a way, I will find a way. But then at some point also I had a call uh, with a friend of mine. It was like, yeah, but to like, I understand this belief and it's helped you a lot, but to what cause at some point? Like, is this... is like what what do you have to prove that that you can make this work like you you look you look maybe not in the happiest state right now right you have a lot of things going on there's a lot of headaches you know problems with business partners stuff like that and it's like yeah for what in the end right and that was actually an interesting interesting uh and that's actually when we sort of reinvented the coaching company to how we do it now uh but i because i realized that that belief yes it's true i do think you know, I can make anything happen. Not everything, right? Anything, not everything. There is a very big difference there. Um, but yeah, to what cause? And then when you succeed, is that considered a win? That I think is also a very important question. Like, what is the win here? So let's say you do make it. Is that Does that then feel like a win? Is that considered a win? I think it's a good question to reflect on. Like, uh, I think I think it was Tony Robbins. I cannot really think of, think of the quote that he mentioned, but it was sort of, sort of like, if you arrive at where you want to arrive, does it then... Is that then considered a win? Because if not, you know, you're kind of doomed to fail. Yeah, I love that. It's a great anecdote. Um, I do think sometimes uh, 
I, I don't know if this is like ubiquitous amongst poker players or if other people do it, but I think poker players are a pretty eclectic bunch. So maybe it is just more commonly found in, in our community. But yeah, putting ourselves through these challenges where it's like, okay, we can do it, but is it are we really gaining anything? We make it across the other side of the river and it's like, wow, that was really hard. And um, I'm not going to do that again. And then life just kind of goes back to normal. I don't know. It's goofy. It's a, it's a goofy thing. <laughs> it 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 is very goofy indeed. I think it's also interesting. Like when I think like nowadays, what I learned is that I don't say yes that easily anymore. Or when I say like, oh, that sounds like fun, I kind of know like, oh wait, I now know kind of what comes with this idea, like in a practical sense, and how long it's gonna take, the energy it's gonna cost. So that's maybe way more conscious of, you know, what you say yes to. So you have to think through it a little bit more. But on the other side, it's also, yeah, if I'm going to think through everything a lot, then I don't start. So I have to kind of find like the balance. So on one on one side, I think there is a benefit of just throwing yourself in the deep, you know, and then try to not drown and kind of learning that way. And the other compared to like the other side of like inspecting the pool from every corner before you dive in. Right. We kind of have to find a balance in the middle. I also think with age, like if you're still young in your 20s, you know, by all means, just jump in and start trying not to drown. But when you become a little bit older, you know, and also other things in life, take your time and, and your energy, it's probably better to to be a bit more, how do you say that? Calculated with your decisions. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I do think a lot of that comes with age, uh, experience, wisdom to some degree. Um, yeah, the way I would describe it is just being more intentional. Um, you, you just yeah, have exactly. more responsibilities often as you get older. At least that's how it's worked out for me. Um, so yeah, time is more meaningful. Like I remember in my early twenties, like I would wake up, I would go outside, I would just like lay in the pool, and it would be like, okay, well, I could play poker today, or I could just continue laying here. Maybe I'll go get some food. It's just like you, you don't really have anything on your schedule. There's you know, I would routinely get people calling me upset that I hadn't checked my email in three weeks and my mailbox was overflowing. I mean, I just did not have like adult skills at all. So I guess, you know, with that in mind, my early business experiences didn't come that naturally to me. But fortunately, I've uh, I've fixed those easy to fix <laughs> basic, you know, adult task abilities. Um, but I mean, but yeah, yeah it, it was just like video games for you in the beginning, poke for you in the beginning. It's with everything in the beginning, right? We kind of have to expect that we sort of suck in it, and we, yeah, <laughs> we kind of have to feel forward, right? We and, and try and try to learn from our mistakes. I remember, you know, in the beginning of my career, I went broke a couple of times, and you had an opti optimistic father. I had an optimistic father as well. You always told me, son, you know, many of the successful businessmen, you know, they went bankrupt multiple times before they finally found, you know, the business that actually help them flourish so even though i went broke a couple of times in the beginning he always kept kept, kept those motivational work words and in the end uh, luckily it did all work out uh wrapping this up what would you like the audience to take away from the conversation we had today hmm. um i guess just whatever it is that um, we spoke about that kind of resonates with them. I, I think different parts will resonate with different people. I think the self-growth through poker is, is a big thing that, um, you know, just opening your mind to that conceptually can, can really help uh, in, in terms of making playing more sustainable and, and more meaningful and more productive. Um, 
yeah, I, I guess that's that's probably a nice central point to reiterate. All right. Any other final words you would like to share before wrapping it up? Um. Yeah, I'll I'll mention one last thing. Uh, and we sort of talked about this or danced around it, but didn't explicitly get to it. Um. I I think there's two ways to be motivated in poker or or in life. Let's say, and one is to kind of be motivated by you know anger and, and maybe grit to some degree and another is to be motivated by like love and understanding and trust and these more sort of you know, softer qualities but more positive and uh i see where it's useful to be motivated by anger and i at times have used that um although i feel very strongly that it's not as sustainable and my best experiences in poker have been when I've been in the most loving, open-hearted state. Um, and I guess I would encourage people uh, who have maybe thought about this or are on the fence to sort of pursue that because I find that, you know, at least personally, and that's kind of all I can speak from is my own experience, uh, it's, yeah, much better long run. I think Joe is also a big fan of that, right? Create from a state of abundance instead of from a state of lack. The more you feel and lack, the more you focus on what you're lagging, the more frustrated you get. Let's say, you know, you're playing and you're in a downswing and you want something so badly. And then, you know, a 10% things happen again. She's like, oh, now I'm even further away. I was already in so much lack. Now there's even more lack. And then you only create more negativity, which usually doesn't really, yeah, it creates more stress. Whereas if you're already happy with your life and you're abundant and it's like, listen, if I win extra today, it's great, but I don't need it. Kind of, you know, chances are greater. I don't know if this is scientifically proven, but chances are greater that you will actually do well. But also, I think as a consequence of the fact that you don't experience all these negative emotions all the time. Yeah, and it's also just like sustain more sustainable from a standpoint of if you feel better when you're doing something, because ultimately we all do want to feel that love within ourselves, that fulfillment. Uh, you're just breeding that environment, uh, which is, yeah, just more conducive to, you know, having a sustainable experience. And I think at times when I was motivated by anger, um, yes, it can be quite a performance boost, but it also sometimes, you know, discourages you from actually playing in the first place, because if you're in like a peaceful state and you want to play poker and you're thinking subconsciously already, like, well, I'm going to be angry. It's, I don't know. I, I find it to just be somewhat counterproductive. Yeah, I get what you mean with kind of like the driven from anger. Let's say, I think people can relate to this. Let's say they've been in a downswing. And at some point, they're like, okay, this has to stop right now. <laughs> you know, and then they get very motivated. They they pick up everything. They try to take full control. And then it can turn around. But I agree, being in that state. Oh, this has to be yeah, you, can, you cannot live in that state for a prolonged period of time. I, I do think anger is, is better than depression, though, uh, in terms of like how productive they are uh neither maybe as beneficial as, as love but anger can kind of get you going if you're in a rush. yeah exactly it moves you forward so you're angry yeah. at the downstairs like fuck it i'm gonna i'm gonna take controls that <laughs> where you're like more of a victim it's like oh this downstairs never ends i suck and you get into a depression you end up laying on the couch and not yeah, very, getting out of it yes very often associated with lethargy just um stagnation all right. Well, I think there was a lot of wisdom that we've covered today. So I want to thank you very much, Andrew, for sharing that on our podcast. I want to thank yeah, Adam as well. It's a pleasure. Uh, the pleasure has been all ours.
Thank you again, Mr. Chewy, for spreading all this wisdom with us. A lot of good wisdom in this podcast. Adam, what are your main takeaways? Where to start? Uh, I think the main kind of theme running through this conversation for me was reinventing yourself and using poker as a path for growth and self-discovery. And what I like about Andrew's story is how long his career has been and how many evolutions he's had to make. And I think it was really nice to hear how every sort of chapter of his life led to almost growing and becoming a better version of himself. It was from that those early days of hitting rock bottom, going broke and led about bankroll management. It was then going on some self-discovery and going into meditation and yoga and going inwards rather than outwards to kind of rebalance himself. Then there was the the more later ones where into solvers and how to think more about poker on a more fundamental level. And yeah, I think for himself, he kind of talked about how poker and growth are kind of linked very strongly for him. And the paths are almost the same at this stage. When I asked him what the kind of key to his longevity was, it was one, he loves it. Two, he uh, likes to, he's humble, but three, he's like self-growth, self-growth from poker. And he enjoys that pursuit that it leads to. Next thing that was really apparent to me was his use of intuition, how he trusts himself. And he finds a way to, uh, yeah, be in tune with his intuition. And he's spent a lot of time, by the sounds of it, fine-tuning that skill set. So it's not something where it's like, oh, I, I'm going to use my intuition in this spot. It's almost like, what is my intuition telling me in certain scenarios? And how do I fine-tune that over long periods of time? So when it matters most, I can trust myself to use my intuition. And one of his biggest pain points was in a tournament when he didn't use his intuition. So in his career, he learned the hard way that if I go against my intuition, this is going to lead me to potentially make a mistake that I'm going to regret later. So I think fine-tuning intuition has been a really, really big one. And yeah, I really like the whole talk about his spiritual journey and basically trying to find meaning beyond himself, so to speak. We could have went very, very deep with that. I think we hopefully covered it in a way that is applicable to poker players and trying to see your overall life as a kind of journey and everything links together. I think the main kind of usable takeaway from that is that everything's kind of connected in a way and we can't separate our pursuit as a poker player with our pursuit in life and we're all just basically experiencing the moment of life. And this brought him, brought us around to this nice realization, which he lives his life by. I think he called it a belief, actually, that every moment is complete in itself, which I really love. And I think this is, if you could apply that kind of concept to do things for the sake of doing them, whether it's a habit, whether it's a pursuit, the, self, the, the act of doing something becomes its own journey, not to get somewhere, not to achieve something. I think myself going away from this conversation, I'm going to think how I can apply that more because one of my dangers is to think of how an action I take will lead to a future outcome. So maybe I can learn more about that philosophy of how to uh, just do things for the sake of doing them. The action itself becomes a complete circle of of fulfillment or enjoyment in the moment. I think that would be a powerful lesson for myself. How about you, Rene? What are some of the main takeaways for you? No, I mean, I think for the majority of people listening, but definitely for me as well, uh, definitely... I, I I completely agree with that. It's, it's again, more of the things that came up with me was like the surrendering, the acceptance, the abundance. I think these are all usually good states to live from instead of living from a state of lack. For example, I think that's something that we touch on at the end. Uh, indeed, also we talked about like how you can improve in the technical area. And then there's like, we just at some point, I think labeled it personal development. The spirituality is included in that because sometimes it's mental game performance because will certain spiritual uh, uh, endeavors increase your performance? Yes. So can we also just say it uh, under the name of performance? I think so. And especially people who kind of have a fixed idea when I say the word spirituality, a certain idea comes off and then because of that idea, they might be shut off of, of it. But I hope this conversation definitely uh, opened them up that you know maybe 
spirituality can actually help them. And I think he named it as a sign where if you constantly experience certain thoughts or emotions that are that are negative or you experience things that shouldn't really be experienced in a certain moment, these were signs that maybe you should do some exploring on a spiritual level. He was very big on beliefs. Uh, I'm very big on beliefs as well. I know you are very big, uh, big on beliefs as well. And especially the fact that you will have to reinvent certain beliefs and reflect on certain beliefs because certain beliefs might help you until a certain point or to achieve certain things. But then I think it was in the example that I gave. At some point, the same belief that has helped you achieve something could actually stop you from achieving something else. And in the end, his definition of success was, I think, uh, meaning, right? So how can we achieve more meaning in our life? Uh, that in the end, uh, I think, was kind of the end goal. We also talked, obviously, about some poker technical stuff. We talked a lot about solvers and the limitations of the fact that it's a static model, right? That was kind of the asset humans have while we can take in new information and make the best decision. In order to do that, we have to think about what does our opponent actually have. And it's something that you're very much into the GTO way of thinking. You're thinking more of, a, oh, I'm supposed to do this or supposed to do that. And you kind of forget that your actions are based on your opponent's range. And sometimes I even, I also sometimes catch myself doing that. I'm not thinking about my opponent's range or tendencies enough. Whereas that's, I think should actually be the first thing to take in consideration. Then if the range and the tendencies of your opponents are very much aligned with the input that you give to a static model, like a bio solver, then obviously the outcome, we should just follow the outcome. But many times that's actually not really the case. So good reminder, think about what your opponent actually has. Okay, we're going back to po poker, poker 101. But you know, sometimes we, we make things a bit more complicated. And then he also talked about like the future EV, you know, that you might follow equilibrium play that's break even slightly winning. And you're like, yeah, it's a good play. But then you stand up and you walk through, you walk to the cashier and you see the rest of the tables and how many recreationals were still left in the field. You're like, hmm, maybe I should have taken that in consideration when making this light stack off. So I thought the, the importance of future EV uh yeah very very important point as well now we are very curious as well what your main takeaways are so if you like this video and leave your main takeaways in the comments below you actually get the chance to win a free one month subscription to gto wizard gto wizard our sponsor they will pick out one comment in between the comment section who left their main takeaways and one of them will win a free one-month subscription to GTO Wizard, okay? So go down below, share us what your main takeaways are. And without that, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. I want to thank Adam for co-hosting this podcast with me. I want to thank Mr. Chewy again for spreading all his wisdom. And I would like to see you guys in the next episode.